Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Introduction to Little Women This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Cast in Order of Speaking Meg Read by Arielle Lipshaw Joe Read by Elizabeth Clett Beth Read by Kalinda Amy and Parrot Read by Karen Savage Mrs. March Read by Kara Schallenberg Mr. March Read by Bruce Peary Hannah Read by Marianne Mrs. Hummel, the Hummel children, and Lottie Girl, Child, Tina, Daisy, and Maid Read by Lavinia Lori Read by M.B. Aunt March Played by Amy Graymore Old Man and Dr. Bangs Read by Phil Chenevere Mr. Lawrence Read by David Lawrence Mr. Davis Shopman Young Man Number 2 and Clerk Read by Tom Crawford Cool California Annie Moffat and May Chester Read by Sherlock 85 Clara Miss Lamb and Kitty Read by ESFJ Girl Mr. Lamb and Mr. Dashwood Read by Denny Sayers Mrs. Moffat, Aunt Carol, Old Lady, and Mrs. Chester Read by Sally McConnell Major Lincoln and Tudor Read by Henry Fregon Belle, Second Girl, and Minnie Read by Angela Nan and Mrs. Kirk Read by Susanna Sally Gardiner Moffat Read by Rashada Hortense and Esther Read by Nadine Cardboulet Fred Vaughan Read by John Crowdy John Brook Read by Peter Bishop Kate Vaughan Read by Bumblebee Ned Moffat Parker and Young Man Number One Read by Zachary Smith Frank Vaughan Read by John Fricker Grace Vaughan Read by Elizabeth Clett Boy and Demi Read by E. Lee Professor Bear Read by Rainer And narrated by Elizabeth Clett End of introduction Chapter One of Little Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter One Playing Pilgrims Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. It's so dreadful to be poor, sighed Meg, looking down at her old dress. I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things and other girls nothing at all," added little Amy, with an injured sniff. "'We've got father and mother and each other,' said Beth, contentedly, from her corner. The four young faces on which the firelight shone brightened at the cheerful words, but darkened again as Joe said sadly, "'We haven't got father, and shall not have him for a long time.' She didn't say, perhaps never but each silently added it, thinking of father far away where the fighting was. Nobody spoke for a minute. Then Meg said in an altered tone, "'You know the reason mother proposed not having any presents this Christmas was because it is going to be a hard winter for everyone, and she thinks we ought not to spend money for pleasure when our men are suffering so in the army. We can't do much, but we can make our little sacrifices, and ought to do it gladly.' but I am afraid I don't." And Meg shook her head, as she thought regretfully of all the pretty things she wanted. "'But I don't think the little we should spend would do any good. We've each got a dollar, and the army wouldn't be much helped by our giving that. I agree not to expect anything from Mother or you, but I do want to buy Undine and Sintram for myself. I've wanted it so long,' said Joe, who was a bookworm. "'I plan to spend mine in new music.' said Beth, with a little sigh, which no one heard but the hearth-brush and kettle-holder. "'I shall get a nice box of Faber's drawing-pencils. I really need them,' said Amy, decidedly. "'Mother didn't say anything about our money, and she won't wish us to give up everything. Let's each buy what we want and have a little fun. I'm sure we work hard enough to earn it,' cried Jo, examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. "'I know I do teaching those tiresome children nearly all day when I'm longing to enjoy myself at home," began Meg, in the complaining tone again. "'You don't have half such a hard time as I do,' said Joe. "'How would you like to be shut up for hours with a nervous, fussy old lady who keeps you trotting, is never satisfied, and worries you till you're ready to fly out the window or cry?' "'It's naughty to fret. But I do think washing dishes and keeping things tidy is the worst work in the world.' It makes me cross, and my hands get so stiff I can't practice well at all." And Beth looked at her rough hands with a sigh that any one could hear that time. "'I don't believe any of you suffer as I do,' cried Amy, "'for you don't have to go to school with impertinent girls who plague you if you don't know your lessons and laugh at your dresses and label your father if he isn't rich and insult you when your nose isn't nice.' If you mean libel, I'd say so, and not talk of labels as if Papa was a pickle-bottle," advised Joe, laughing. I know what I mean, and you needn't be satirical about it. It's proper to use good words and improve your vocabulary," returned Amy, with dignity. Don't peck at one another, children. Don't you wish we had the money Papa lost when we were little, Joe? Dear me, how happy and good we'd be if we had no worries said Meg, who could remember better times. "'You said the other day you thought we were a deal happier than the King children, for they were fighting and fretting all the time in spite of their money.' "'So I did, Beth. Well, I think we are. 
for though we do have to work, we make fun of ourselves and are a pretty jolly set, as Joe would say. Joe does use such slang words, observed Amy, with a reproving look at the long figure stretched on the rug. Joe immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. Don't, Joe, it's so boyish. That's why I do it. I detest rude, unladylike girls. I hate affected, niminy-piminy chits. Birds in their little nests agree," sang Beth, the peacemaker, with such a funny face that both sharp voices softened to a laugh, and the pecking ended for that time. "'Really, girls, you are both to be blamed,' said Meg, beginning to lecture in her elder sisterly fashion. "'You are old enough to leave off boyish tricks and to behave better, Josephine. It didn't matter so much when you were a little girl, but now you are so tall and turn up your hair. You should remember that you are a young lady." "'I'm not. And if turning up my hair makes me one, I'll wear it in two tails till I'm twenty," cried Joe, pulling off her net and shaking down a chestnut mane. "'I hate to think I've got to grow up and be Miss March and wear long gowns and look as prim as a china aster. It's bad enough to be a girl anyway when I like boys' games and work and manners. I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. And it's worse than ever now, for I'm dying to go and fight with Papa and I can only stay home and knit like a poky old woman." And Joe shook the blue army sock till the needles rattled like castanets, and her ball bounded across the room. "'Poor Joe! It's too bad, but it can't be helped. So you must try to be contented with making your name boyish and playing brother to us girls,' said Beth, stroking the rough head with a hand that all the dishwashing and dusting in the world could not make ungentle in its touch. "'As for you, Amy,' continued Meg. You are altogether too particular and prim. Your airs are funny now, but you'll grow up an affected little goose if you don't take care. I like your nice manners and refined ways of speaking when you don't try to be elegant. But your absurd words are as bad as Joe's slang. If Joe is a tomboy, and Amy a goose, what am I, please?" asked Beth, ready to share the lecture. You're a dear and nothing else, answered Meg warmly, and no one contradicted her for the mouse was the pet of the family. As young readers like to know how people look, we will take this moment to give them a little sketch of the four sisters, who sat knitting away in the twilight, while the December snow fell quietly without, and the fire crackled cheerfully within. It was a comfortable room, though the carpet was faded and the furniture very plain, for a good picture or two hung on the walls, books filled the recesses, chrysanthemums and Christmas roses bloomed in the windows, and a pleasant atmosphere of home peace pervaded it. Margaret, the eldest of the four, was sixteen, and very pretty, being plump and fair with large eyes, plenty of soft brown hair, a sweet mouth, and white hands, of which she was rather vain. Fifteen-year-old Joe was very tall, thin, and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs which were very much in her way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp grey eyes, which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a fly-away look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Elizabeth, or Beth, as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of thirteen, with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression which was seldom disturbed. 
Her father called her Little Miss Tranquillity, and the name suited her excellently, for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. Amy, though the youngest, was a most important person, in her own opinion at least, a regular snow-maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair curling on her shoulders, pale and slender, and always carrying herself like a young lady mindful of her manners. What the characters of the four sisters were we will leave to be found out. The clock struck six, and having swept up the hearth, Beth put a pair of slippers down to warm. Somehow the sight of the old shoes had a good effect upon the girls, for mother was coming and everyone brightened to welcome her. Meg stopped lecturing and lighted the lamp, Amy got out of the easy-chair without being asked, and Jo forgot how tired she was as she sat up to hold the slippers nearer to the blaze. "'They are quite worn out. Marmy must have a new pair.' "'I thought I'd get her some with my dollar,' said Beth. "'No, I shall,' cried Amy. "'I'm the oldest,' began Meg. But Jo cut in with a decided, "'I'm the man of the family now Papa is away, and I shall provide the slippers, for he told me to take special care of Mother while he was gone.' "'I'll tell you what we'll do,' said Beth. "'Let's each get her something for Christmas, and not get anything for ourselves.' "'That's like you, dear. What will we get?' exclaimed Jo. Everyone thought soberly for a minute, then Meg announced, as if the idea was suggested by the sight of her own pretty hands, "'I shall give her a nice pair of gloves.' "'Army shoes. Best to be had,' cried Jo. "'Some handkerchiefs, all hemmed,' said Beth. "'I'll get a little bottle of cologne. She likes it, and it won't cost much, so I'll have some left to buy my pencils,' added Amy. "'How will we give the things?' asked Meg. "'Put them on the table and bring her in and see her open the bundles. Don't you remember how we used to do on our birthdays?' answered Jo. "'I used to be so frightened when it was my turn to sit in the chair with the crown on, and see you all come marching round to give the presents with a kiss. I liked the things and the kisses, but it was dreadful to have you sit looking at me while I opened the bundles,' said Beth, who was toasting her face and the bread for tea at the same time. Let Marmy think we are getting things for ourselves, and then surprise her. We must go shopping to-morrow afternoon, Meg. There is so much to do about the play for Christmas night," said Jo, marching up and down with her hands behind her back and her nose in the air. "'I don't mean to act any more after this time. I'm getting too old for such things,' observed Meg, who was as much a child as ever about dressing up frolics. "'You won't stop, I know, as long as you can trail round in a white gown with your hair down and wear gold-paper jewellery. You're the best actress we've got, and there'll be an end of everything if you quit the boards,' said Jo. "'We ought to rehearse to-night. Come here, Amy, and do the fainting scene, for you are as stiff as a poker in that.' "'I can't help it. I never saw any one faint, and I don't choose to make myself all black and blue tumbling flat as you do. If I can go down easily I'll drop.' If I can't, I shall fall into a chair and be graceful. I don't care if Hugo does come at me with a pistol," returned Amy, who was not gifted with dramatic power, but was chosen because she was small enough to be borne out shrieking by the villain of the piece. "'Do it this way. Clasp your hand so, and stagger across the room, crying frantically, "'Roderigo, save me, save me!' And away went Jo, with a melodramatic scream which was truly thrilling. Amy followed, but she poked her hands out stiffly before her, and jerked herself along as if she went by machinery, and her "'Ow!' was more suggestive of pins being run into her than of fear and anguish. Jo gave a despairing groan, and Meg laughed outright, 
while Beth let her bread burn as she watched the fun with interest. Oh, it's no use. Do the best you can when the time comes, and if the audience laughs, don't blame me. Come on, Meg. Then things went smoothly, for Don Pedro defied the world in a speech of two pages without a single break. Hagar the witch chanted an awful incantation over her kettleful of simmering toads with weird effect. Roderigo rent his chains asunder manfully, and Hugo died in agonies of remorse and arsenic with a wild, Ha! Ha! It's the best we've had yet, said Meg, as the dead villain sat up and rubbed his elbows. I don't see how you can write and act such splendid things, Joe. You're a regular Shakespeare, exclaimed Beth, who firmly believed that her sisters were gifted with wonderful genius in all things. Not quite, replied Joe modestly. I do think the witch's curse and operatic tragedy is rather a nice thing, but I'd like to try Macbeth, if we only had a trap-door for Banquo. I always wanted to do the killing part." "'Is that a dagger I see before me?' muttered Joe, rolling her eyes and clutching at the air, as she had seen a famous tragedian do. "'No, it's the toasting-fork with Mother's shoe on it instead of the bread. Beth's stage-struck!' cried Meg, and the rehearsal ended in a general burst of laughter. "'Glad to find you so merry, my girls,' said a cheery voice at the door, and actors and audience turned to welcome a tall motherly lady with a can-I-help-you look about her, which was truly delightful. She was not elegantly dressed, but a noble-looking woman, and the girls thought the grey cloak and unfashionable bonnet covered the most splendid mother in the world. "'Well, dearies, how have you got on to-day?' There was so much to do, getting the boxes ready to go to-morrow, that I didn't come home to dinner. Has anyone called, Beth? How's your cold, Meg? Joe, you look tired to death. Come and kiss me, baby." While making these maternal inquiries Mrs. March got her wet things off, her warm slippers on, and sitting down in the easy-chair drew Amy to her lap, preparing to enjoy the happiest hour of her busy day. The girls flew about, trying to make things comfortable, each in her own way. Meg arranged the tea-table. Joe brought wood and set chairs, dropping, overturning, and clattering everything she touched. Beth trotted to and fro between parlour and kitchen, quiet and busy, while Amy gave directions to everyone as she sat with her hands folded. As they gathered about the table, Mrs. March said with a particularly happy face, "'I've got a treat for you after supper.' A quick, bright smile went round like a streak of sunshine. Beth clapped her hands, regardless of the biscuit she held, and Joe tossed up her napkin, crying, "'A letter! A letter! Three cheers for father!' "'Yes, a nice long letter. He is well, and thinks he shall get through the cold season better than we feared. He sends all sorts of loving wishes for Christmas, and an especial message to you girls,' said Mrs. March, patting her pocket as if she had got a treasure there. "'Hurry up and get done. Don't stop to quirk your little finger and simper over your plate, Amy.' cried Jo, choking on her tea and dropping her bread butter-side down on the carpet in her haste to get at the treat. Beth ate no more, but crept away to sit in her shadowy corner and brood over the delight to come, till the others were ready. "'I think it was so splendid in father to go as chaplain when he was too old to be drafted, and not strong enough for a soldier,' said Meg warmly. "'Don't I wish I could go as a drummer, a vivan—what's its name?—or a nurse so that I could be near him and help him?' exclaimed Joe with a groan. "'It must be very disagreeable to sleep in a tent and eat all sorts of bad-tasting things and drink out of a tin mug,' sighed Amy. "'When will he come home, Marmy?' asked Beth, with a little quiver in her voice. 
"'Not for many months, dear, unless he is sick. "'He will stay and do his work faithfully as long as he can, "'and we won't ask for him back a minute sooner than he can be spared. "'Now come and hear the letter.' They all drew to the fire, mother in the big chair with Beth at her feet, Meg and Amy perched on either arm of the chair, and Joe leaning on the back, where no one would see any sign of emotion if the letter should happen to be touching. Very few letters were written in those hard times that were not touching, especially those which fathers sent home. In this one little was said of the hardships endured, the dangers faced, or the homesickness conquered. It was a cheerful, hopeful letter, full of lively descriptions of camp life, marches, and military news, and only at the end did the writer's heart overflow with fatherly love and longing for the little girls at home. Give them all of my dear love and a kiss. Tell them I think of them by day, pray for them by night, and find my best comfort in their affection at all times. A year seems very long to wait before I see them, but remind them that while we wait we may all work, so that these hard days need not be wasted. I know they will remember all I said to them, that they will be loving children to you, will do their duty faithfully, fight their bosom enemies bravely, and conquer themselves so beautifully that when I come back to them I may be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women." Everybody sniffed when they came to that part. Jo wasn't ashamed of the great tear that dropped off the end of her nose, and Amy never minded the rumpling of her curls as she hid her face on her mother's shoulder and sobbed out. "'I'm a selfish girl, but I'll truly try to be better so he mayn't be disappointed in me by and by.' "'We all will,' cried Meg. "'I think too much of my looks and hate to work but won't any more if I can help it. I'll try and be what he loves to call me, a little woman, and not be rough and wild, but do my duty here instead of wanting to be somewhere else," said Jo, thinking that keeping her temper at home was a much harder task than facing a rebel or two down south. Beth said nothing, but wiped away her tears with the blue army sock, and began to knit again with all her might, losing no time in doing the duty that lay nearest her, while she resolved in her quiet little soul to be all that father hoped to find her when the year brought round the happy coming home. Mrs. March broke the silence that followed Joe's words by saying in her cheery voice, "'Do you remember how you used to play Pilgrim's Progress when you were little things? Nothing delighted you more than to have me tie my peace-bags on your backs for burdens, give you hats and sticks and rolls of paper, and let you travel through the house from the cellar, which was the city of destruction, up, up to the housetop, where you had all the lovely things you could collect to make a celestial city. What fun it was, especially going by the lions, fighting Apollyon, and passing through the valley where the hobgoblins were, said Jo. I liked the place where the bundles fell off and tumbled downstairs, said Meg. I don't remember much about it, except that I was afraid of the cellar and the dark entry, and always liked the cake and milk we had up at the top. If I wasn't too old for such things, I'd rather like to play it over again." said Amy, who began to talk of renouncing childish things at the mature age of twelve. "'We never are too old for this, my dear, because it is a play we are playing all the time, in one way or another. Our burdens are here, our road is before us, and the longing for goodness and happiness is the guide that leads us through many troubles and mistakes to the peace which is a true celestial city. Now, my little pilgrims, suppose you begin again, not in play, but in earnest, and see how far on you can get before father comes home." "'Really, mother? Where are our bundles?' asked Amy, 
who was a very literal young lady. "'Each of you told what your burden was just now, except Beth. I rather think she hasn't got any,' said her mother. "'Yes, I have. Mine is dishes and dusters, and envying girls with nice pianos, and being afraid of people.' Beth's bundle was such a funny one that everybody wanted to laugh, but nobody did, for it would have hurt her feelings very much. "'Let us do it,' said Meg thoughtfully. "'It is only another name for trying to be good, and the story may help us, for though we do want to be good it's hard work and we forget and don't do our best.' "'We were in the slough of despond to-night, and Mother came and pulled us out as help did in the book. We ought to have our role of directions like Christian. What shall we do about that?' asked Jo, delighted with the fancy which lent a little romance to the very dull task of doing her duty. "'Look under your pillows Christmas morning, and you will find your guide-book,' replied Mrs. March. They talked over the new plan while old Hannah cleared the table, then out came the four little work-baskets, and the needles flew as the girls made sheets for Aunt March. It was uninteresting sewing, but to-night no one grumbled. They adopted Joe's plan of dividing the long seams into four parts, and calling the quarters Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, and in that way got on capitally especially when they talked about the different countries as they stitched their way through them. At nine they stopped work, and sang as usual before they went to bed. No one but Beth could get much music out of the old piano, but she had a way of softly touching the yellow keys and making a pleasant accompaniment to the simple songs they sang. Meg had a voice like a flute, and she and her mother led the little choir. Amy chirped like a cricket, and Jo wandered through the airs at her own sweet will always coming out at the wrong place with a croak or a quaver that spoiled the most pensive tune. They had always done this from the time they could lisp, Crinkle, crinkle, little tar, and it had become a household custom, for the mother was a born singer. The first sound in the morning was her voice as she went about the house singing like a lark, and the last sound at night was the same cheery sound, for the girls never grew too old for that familiar lullaby. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 2 A Merry Christmas Joe was the first to wake in the gray dawn of Christmas morning. No stockings hung at the fireplace, and for a moment she felt as much disappointed as she did long ago, when her little sock fell down because it was crammed so full of goodies. Then she remembered her mother's promise, and slipping her hand under her pillow, drew out a little crimson-covered book. She knew it very well, for it was that beautiful old story of the best life ever lived, and Jo felt that it was a true guide-book for any pilgrim going on a long journey. She woke Meg with a "'Merry Christmas!' and bade her see what was under her pillow. A green-covered book appeared, with the same picture inside, and a few words written by their mother, which made their one present very precious in their eyes. Presently Beth and Amy woke to rummage and find their little books also, one dove-colored, the other blue, and all sat looking at and talking about them, while the east grew rosy with the coming day. In spite of her small vanities, Margaret had a sweet and pious nature, which unconsciously influenced her sisters, especially Jo, who loved her very tenderly, and obeyed her because her advice was so gently given. "'Girls,' said Meg seriously, looking from the tumbled head beside her to the two little night-capped ones in the room beyond, 
Mother wants us to read and love and mind these books, and we must begin at once. We used to be faithful about it, but since Father went away and all this war trouble unsettled us, we have neglected many things. You can do as you please, but I shall keep my book on the table here and read a little every morning as soon as I wake, for I know it will do me good and help me through the day." Then she opened her new book and began to read. Joe put her arm round her, and leaning cheek to cheek, read also, with the quiet expression so seldom seen on her restless face. "'How good Meg is! Come, Amy, let's do as they do. I'll help you with the hard words, and they'll explain things if we don't understand,' whispered Beth, very much impressed by the pretty books and her sister's example. "'I'm glad mine is blue,' said Amy and then the rooms were very still while the pages were softly turned, and the winter sunshine crept in to touch the bright heads and serious faces with a Christmas greeting. "'Where is Mother?' asked Meg, as she and Joe ran down to thank her for their gifts half an hour later. "'Goodness only knows. Some poor creetur come a-beggin', and your ma went straight off to see what was needed. There never was such a woman for givin' away victuals and drink, clothes and firin'. Replied Hannah, who had lived with the family since Meg was born, and was considered by them all more as a friend than a servant. She will be back soon, I think, so fry your cakes and have everything ready, said Meg, looking over the presents which were collected in a basket and kept under the sofa, ready to be produced at the proper time. Why, where is Amy's bottle of cologne? she added, as the little flask did not appear. She took it out a minute ago, and went off with it to put a ribbon on it or some such notion replied Joe, dancing about the room to take the first stiffness off the new army slippers. "'How nice my handkerchiefs look, don't they? Hannah washed and ironed them for me, and I marked them all myself,' said Beth, looking proudly at the somewhat uneven letters which had cost her such labour. "'Bless the child! She's gone and put mother on them instead of M. March! How funny!' cried Joe, taking one up. "'Isn't that right? I thought it was better to do it so.' because Meg's initials are M.M., and I don't want anyone to use these but Marmy," said Beth, looking troubled. "'It's all right, dear, and a very pretty idea. Quite sensible, too, for no one can ever mistake now. It will please her very much, I know,' said Meg, with a frown for Joe and a smile for Beth. "'There's Mother! Hide the basket, quick!' cried Joe, as a door slammed and steps sounded in the hall. Amy came in hastily, and looked rather abashed when she saw her sisters all waiting for her. "'Where have you been, and what are you hiding behind you?' asked Meg, surprised to see by her hood and cloak that lazy Amy had been out so early. "'Don't laugh at me, Joe. I didn't mean any one should know till the time came. I only meant to change the little bottle for a big one, and I gave all my money to get it, and I'm truly trying not to be selfish any more.' As she spoke, Amy showed the handsome flask which replaced the cheap one, and looked so earnest and humble in her little effort to forget herself that Meg hugged her on the spot. Joe pronounced her a trump, while Beth ran to the window and picked her finest rose to ornament the stately bottle. "'You see, I felt ashamed of my present, after reading and talking about being good this morning. So I ran round the corner and changed it the minute I was up, and I'm so glad, for mine is the handsomest now.' Another bang of the street door sent the basket under the sofa, and the girls to the table, eager for breakfast. "'Merry Christmas, Marmy! Many of them! Thank you for our books! We read some and mean to every day!' they all cried in chorus. "'Merry Christmas, little daughters! I'm glad you began at once, and hope you'll keep on. 
but I want to say one word before we sit down. Not far away from here lies a poor woman with a little newborn baby. Six children are huddled into one bed to keep from freezing, for they have no fire. There is nothing to eat over there, and the oldest boy came to tell me they were suffering hunger and cold. My girls, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present? They were all unusually hungry, having waited nearly an hour, and for a minute no one spoke. Only a minute, for Joe exclaimed impetuously, "'I'm so glad you came before we began.' "'May I go and help carry the things to the poor little children?' asked Beth eagerly. "'I shall take the cream and the muffins,' added Amy, heroically giving up the article she most liked. Meg was already covering the buckwheats and piling the bread into one big plate. "'I thought you'd do it.' said Mrs. March, smiling as if satisfied. "'You shall all go and help me, and when we come back we will have bread and milk for breakfast, and make it up at dinner-time.' They were soon ready, and the procession set out. Fortunately it was early, and they went through the back streets, so few people saw them, and no one laughed at the queer party. A poor, bare, miserable room it was, with broken windows, no fire, ragged bedclothes, a sick mother, wailing baby, and a group of pale hungry children cuddled under one old quilt trying to keep warm. How the big eyes stared and the blue lips smiled as the girls went in. "'Ach, oh, mein Gott! It is good angels come to us,' said the poor woman, crying for joy. "'Funny angels and hoods and mittens,' said Joe, and set them to laughing. In a few minutes it really did seem as if kind spirits had been at work there. Hannah, who had carried wood, made a fire, and stopped up the broken panes with old hats and her own cloak. Mrs. March gave the mother tea and gruel, and comforted her with promises of help, while she dressed the little baby as tenderly as if it had been her own. The girls meantime spread the table, set the children round the fire, and fed them like so many hungry birds, laughing, talking, and trying to understand the funny broken English. "'This is good. The Engelkinder cried the poor things as they ate and warmed their purple hands at the comfortable blaze. The girls had never been called angel-children before, and thought it very agreeable, especially Jo, who had been considered a Sancho ever since she was born. That was a very happy breakfast, though they didn't get any of it, and when they went away, leaving comfort behind, I think there were not in all the city four merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfasts and contented themselves with bread and milk on Christmas morning. "'That's loving our neighbor better than ourselves, and I like it,' said Meg, as they set out their presents while their mother was upstairs collecting clothes for the poor Hummels. Not a very splendid show, but there was a great deal of love done up in the few little bundles and the tall vase of red roses, white chrysanthemums, and trailing vines which stood in the middle gave quite an elegant air to the table. "'She's coming! Strike up, Beth! Open the door, Amy! Three cheers for Marmy!' cried Joe prancing about while Meg went to conduct Mother to the seat of honour. Beth played her gayest march, Amy threw open the door, and Meg enacted escort with great dignity. Mrs. March was both surprised and touched, and smiled with her eyes full as she examined her presents and read the little notes which accompanied them. The slippers went on at once, a new handkerchief was slipped into her pocket, well scented with Amy's cologne, the rose was fastened in her bosom, and the nice gloves were pronounced a perfect fit. 
there was a good deal of laughing and kissing and explaining, in the simple loving fashion which makes these home festivals so pleasant at the time, so sweet to remember long afterward, and then all fell to work. The morning charities and ceremonies took so much time that the rest of the day was devoted to preparations for the evening festivities. Being still too young to go often to the theatre, and not rich enough to afford any great outlay for private performances, the girls put their wits to work, and, necessity being the mother of invention, made whatever they needed. Very clever were some of their productions—pasteboard guitars, antique lamps made of old-fashioned butter-boats covered with silver paper, gorgeous robes of old cotton glittering with tin spangles from a pickle factory, and armour covered with the same useful diamond-shaped bits left in sheets when the lids of preserve pots were cut out. The big chamber was the scene of many innocent revels. No gentlemen were admitted, so Jo played male parts to her heart's content, and took immense satisfaction in a pair of russet leather boots given her by a friend, who knew a lady who knew an actor. These boots, an old foil, and a slashed doublet once used by an artist for some picture, were Joe's chief treasures, and appeared on all occasions. The smallness of the company made it necessary for the two principal actors to take several parts apiece, and they certainly deserved some credit for the hard work they did in learning three or four different parts, whisking in and out of various costumes, and managing the stage besides. It was excellent drill for their memories, a harmless amusement, and employed many hours which otherwise would have been idle, lonely, or spent in less profitable society. On Christmas night a dozen girls piled on to the bed which was the dress circle, and sat before the blue and yellow chintz curtains in a most flattering state of expectancy. There was a good deal of rustling and whispering behind the curtain, a trifle of lamp-smoke, and an occasional giggle from Amy, who was apt to get hysterical in the excitement of the moment. Presently a bell sounded, the curtains flew apart, and the operatic tragedy began. A gloomy wood, according to the one playbill, was represented by a few shrubs in a pot, green bays on the floor, and a cave in the distance. This cave was made with a clothes-horse for a roof, bureaus for walls, and in it was a small furnace in full blast, with a black pot on it and an old witch bending over it. The stage was dark, and the glow of the furnace had a fine effect especially as real steam issued from the kettle when the witch took off the cover. A moment was allowed for the first thrill to subside. Then Hugo the villain stalked in with a clanking sword at his side, a slouching hat, black beard, mysterious cloak, and the boots. After pacing to and fro in much agitation, he struck his forehead, and burst out in a wild strain, singing of his hatred for Roderigo, his love for Zara, and his pleasing resolution to kill the one and win the other. The gruff tones of Hugo's voice, with an occasional shout when his feelings overcame him, were very impressive, and the audience applauded the moment he paused for breath. Bowing with the air of one accustomed to public praise, he stole to the cavern and ordered Hagar to come forth with a commanding, "'What ho, minion! I need thee!' Out came Meg, with grey horsehair hanging about her face, a red and black robe, a staff, and cabalistic signs upon her cloak. Hugo demanded a potion to make Zara adore him, and one to destroy Roderigo. Hagar, in a fine dramatic melody, promised both, and proceeded to call up the spirit who would bring the love-filter. Hither, hither, from thy home, airy sprite, I bid thee come. Born of roses, fed on dew, charms and potions canst thou brew? Bring me here, with elfin speed, the fragrant filter which I need. 
make it sweet and swift and strong. Spirit, answer now my song. A soft strain of music sounded, and then at the back of the cave appeared a little figure in cloudy white, with glittering wings, golden hair, and a garland of roses on its head. Waving a wand, it sang. Hither I come from my airy home, afar in the silver moon. Take the magic spell and use it well, or its power will vanish soon." And dropping a small gilded bottle at the witch's feet, the spirit vanished. Another chant from Hagar produced another apparition, not a lovely one, for with a bang an ugly black imp appeared, and having croaked a reply, tossed a dark bottle at Hugo and disappeared with a mocking laugh. Having warbled his thanks and put the potions in his boots, Hugo departed, and Hagar informed the audience that as he had killed a few of her friends in times past, she had cursed him, and intends to thwart his plans and be revenged on him. Then the curtain fell, and the audience reposed and ate candy while discussing the merits of the play. A good deal of hammering went on before the curtain rose again, but when it became evident what a masterpiece of stage carpentry had been got up, no one murmured at the delay. It was truly superb. A tower rose to the ceiling, halfway up appeared a window with a lamp burning in it, and behind the white curtain appeared Zara in a lovely blue and silver dress waiting for Roderigo. He came in gorgeous array, with plumed cap, red cloak, chestnut love-locks, a guitar, and the boots, of course. Kneeling at the foot of the tower, he sang a serenade in melting tones. Zara replied, and after a musical dialogue consented to fly. Then came the grand effect of the play. Roderigo produced a rope-ladder with five steps to it, threw up one end, and invited Zara to descend. Timidly she crept from her lattice, put her hand on Roderigo's shoulder, and was about to leap gracefully down, when—alas, alas for Zara—she forgot her train. It caught in the window, the tower tottered, leaned forward, fell with a crash, and buried the unhappy lovers in the ruins. A universal shriek arose as the russet boots waved wildly from the wreck, and a golden head emerged, exclaiming, "'I told you so! I told you so!' With wonderful presence of mind, Don Pedro, the cruel sire, rushed in, dragged out his daughter, with a hasty aside, "'Don't laugh! Act as if it was all right!' and ordering Roderigo up, banished him from the kingdom with wrath and scorn. Though decidedly shaken by the fall from the tower upon him, Roderigo defied the old gentleman and refused to stir. This dauntless example fired Zara. She also defied her sire, and he ordered them both to the deepest dungeons of the castle. A stout little retainer came in with chains and led them away, looking very much frightened, and evidently forgetting the speech he ought to have made. Act third was the castle hall, and here Hagar appeared, having come to free the lovers and finish Hugo. She hears him coming at hides, sees him put the potion into two cups of wine, and bids the timid little servant, "'Bear them to the captives in their cells, and tell them I shall come anon.' The servant takes Hugo aside to tell him something, and Hagar changes the cups for two others which are harmless. Ferdinando, the minion, carries them away, and Hagar puts back the cup which holds the poison meant for Roderigo. Hugo, getting thirsty after a long warble, drinks it, loses his wits, and after a good deal of clutching and stamping, falls flat and dies, while Hagar informs him what she has done in a song of exquisite power and melody. This was a truly thrilling scene, though some persons might have thought that the sudden tumbling down of a quantity of long red hair rather marred the effect of the villain's death. He was called before the curtain, and with great propriety appeared, 
leading Hagar, whose singing was considered more wonderful than all the rest of the performance put together. Act fourth displayed the despairing Roderigo on the point of stabbing himself because he has been told that Zara has deserted him. Just as the dagger is at his heart, a lovely song is sung under his window, informing him that Zara is true, but in danger, and he can save her if he will. A key is thrown in which unlocks the door, and in a spasm of rapture he tears off his chains and rushes away to find and rescue his lady-love. Act fifth opened with a stormy scene between Zara and Don Pedro. He wishes her to go into a convent, but she won't hear of it, and after a touching appeal is about to faint when Roderigo dashes in and demands her hand. Don Pedro refuses because he is not rich. They shout and gesticulate tremendously, but cannot agree and Roderigo is about to bear away the exhausted Zara, when the timid servant enters with a letter and a bag from Hagar, who has mysteriously disappeared. The latter informs the party that she bequeaths untold wealth to the young pair, and an awful doom to Don Pedro if he doesn't make them happy. The bag is opened, and several quarts of tin money shower down upon the stage, till it is quite glorified with the glitter. This entirely softens the stern sire. He consents without a murmur. All join in a joyful chorus, and the curtain falls upon the lovers kneeling to receive Don Pedro's blessing in attitudes of the most romantic grace. Tumultuous applause followed, but received an unexpected check, for the cot-bed on which the dress-circle was built suddenly shut up and extinguished the enthusiastic audience. Roderigo and Don Pedro flew to the rescue, and all were taken out unhurt, though many were speechless with laughter. The excitement had hardly subsided when Hannah appeared with— Mrs. March's compliments. And would the ladies walk down to supper? This was a surprise even to the actors, and when they saw the table they looked at one another in rapturous amazement. It was like Marmy to get up a little treat for them, but anything so fine as this was unheard of since the departed days of plenty. There was ice-cream, actually two dishes of it, pink and white, and cake and fruit, and distracting French bonbons, and in the middle of the table four great bouquets of hothouse flowers. It quite took their breath away, and they stared first at the table and then at their mother, who looked as if she enjoyed it immensely. "'Is it fairies?' asked Amy. "'Santa Claus,' said Beth. "'Mother did it.' And Meg smiled her sweetest, in spite of her grey beard and white eyebrows. "'Aunt March had a good fit and sent the supper,' cried Jo, with sudden inspiration. "'All wrong. Old Mr. Lawrence sent it,' replied Mrs. March. The Lawrence boy's grandfather? What in the world put such a thing into his head? We don't know him!" exclaimed Meg. Hannah told one of his servants about your breakfast party. He is an odd old gentleman, but that pleased him. He knew my father years ago, and he sent me a polite note this afternoon, saying he hoped I would allow him to express his friendly feeling toward my children by sending them a few trifles in honour of the day. I could not refuse, and so you have a little feast at night to make up for the bread-and-milk breakfast. That boy put it into his head. I know he did. He's a capital fellow, and I wish we could get acquainted. He looks as if he'd like to know us, but he's bashful. And Meg is so prim she won't let me speak to him when we pass," said Joe, as the plates went round, and the ice began to melt out of sight, with oohs and ahs of satisfaction. "'You mean the people who live in the big house next door, don't you?' asked one of the girls. My mother knows old Mr. Lawrence, but says he's very proud and doesn't like to mix with his neighbors. He keeps his grandson shut up when he isn't riding or walking with his tutor and makes him study very hard. 
We invited him to our party, but he didn't come. Mother says he's very nice, though he never speaks to us girls. Our cat ran away once, and he brought her back, and we talked over the fence, and were getting on capitally, all about cricket and so on, when he saw Meg coming and walked off. I mean to know him some day, for he needs fun, I'm sure he does," said Joe decidedly. I like his manners, and he looks like a little gentleman, so I've no objection to your knowing him, if a proper opportunity comes. He brought the flowers himself, and I should have asked him in, if I had been sure what was going on upstairs. He looked so wistful as he went away, hearing the frolic, and evidently having none of his own. "'It's a mercy you didn't, mother,' laughed Joe, looking at her boots. "'But we'll have another play some time that he can see. Perhaps he'll help act. Won't that be jolly?' "'I never had such a fine bouquet before. How pretty it is!' And Meg examined her flowers with great interest. "'They are lovely. But Beth's roses are sweeter to me.' said Mrs. March, smelling the half-dead posy in her belt. Beth nestled up to her and whispered softly, "'I wish I could send my bunch to father. I'm afraid he isn't having such a merry Christmas as we are.'" End of chapter 2《Chapter Three, The Lawrence Boy "'Joe! Joe, where are you?' cried Meg at the foot of the garret stairs. "'Here,' answered a husky voice from above, and running up Meg found her sister eating apples and crying over the air of Redcliffe, wrapped up in a comforter on an old three-legged sofa by the sunny window. This was Joe's favorite refuge, and here she loved to retire with half a dozen russets and a nice book to enjoy the quiet and the society of a pet rat who lived nearby and didn't mind her a particle. As Meg appeared, Scrabble whisked into his hole. Joe shook the tears off her cheeks and waited to hear the news. "'Such fun! Only see! A regular note of invitation from Mrs. Gardiner for tomorrow night!' cried Meg, waving the precious paper and then proceeding to read it with girlish delight. Mrs. Gardiner would be happy to see Miss March and Miss Josephine at a little dance on New Year's Eve. Marmy is willing we should go. Now what shall we wear?" "'What's the use of asking that, when you know we shall wear our poplins because we haven't got anything else?' answered Joe, with her mouth full. "'If I only had a silk!' sighed Meg. "'Mother says I may when I'm eighteen, perhaps, but two years is an everlasting time to wait.' I'm sure our pops look like silk, and they are nice enough for us. Yours is as good as new, but I forgot the burn and the tear in mine. Oh, whatever shall I do? The burn shows badly, and I can't take any out." "'You must sit still all you can and keep your back out of sight. The front is all right. I shall have a new ribbon for my hair, and Marmy will lend me her little pearl pin, and my new slippers are lovely, and my gloves will do, though they aren't as nice as I'd like. Mine are spoiled with lemonade, and I can't get any new ones, so I shall have to go without," said Jo, who never troubled herself much about dress. "'You must have gloves, or I won't go!' cried Meg decidedly. "'Gloves are more important than anything else. You can't dance without them, and if you don't I should be so mortified.' "'Then I'll stay still. I don't care much for company dancing. It's no fun to go sailing round. I like to fly about and cut capers.' 
You can't ask Mother for new ones. They are so expensive and you are so careless. She said when you spoiled the others that she shouldn't get you any more this winter. Can't you make them do? I can hold them crumpled up in my hand so no one will know how stained they are. That's all I can do. No, I'll tell you how we can manage. Each wear one good one and carry a bad one, don't you see? Your hands are bigger than mine, and you will stretch my glove dreadfully," began Meg, whose gloves were a tender point with her. "'Then I'll go without. I don't care what people say,' cried Jo, taking up her book. "'You may have it, you may. Only don't stain it, and do behave nicely. Don't put your hands behind you, or stare, or say Christopher Columbus, will you?' "'Don't worry about me. I'll be as prim as I can and not get into any scrapes if I can help it. Now go and answer your note and let me finish this splendid story.' So Meg went away to accept with thanks, look over her dress, and sing blithely as she did up her one real lace frill, while Jo finished her story, her four apples, and had a game of romps with Scrabble. On New Year's Eve the parlour was deserted for the two younger girls played dressing-maids and the two elder were absorbed in the all-important business of getting ready for the party. Simple as the toilets were, there was a great deal of running up and down, laughing and talking, and at one time a strong smell of burnt hair pervaded the house. Meg wanted a few curls about her face, and Jo undertook to pinch the papered locks with a pair of hot tongs. "'Ought they to smoke like that?' asked Beth from her perch on the bed. "'It's the dampness drying.' replied Jo. "'What a queer smell! It's like burnt feathers,' observed Amy, smoothing her own pretty curls with a superior air. "'There, now, I'll take off the papers and you'll see a cloud of little ringlets,' said Jo, putting down the tongs. She did take off the papers, but no cloud of ringlets appeared, for the hair came with the papers, and the horrified hairdresser laid a row of little scorched bundles on the bureau before her victim. "'Oh!' Oh, oh, what have you done? I'm spoiled. I can't go. My hair! Oh, my hair!" wailed Meg, looking with despair at the uneven frizzle on her forehead. Oh, just my luck. You shouldn't have asked me to do it. I always spoil everything. I'm so sorry, but the tongs were too hot, and so I've made a mess," groaned poor Jo, regarding the little black pancakes with tears of regret. It isn't spoiled. Just frizzle it and tie your ribbon so the ends come on your forehead a bit, and it will look like the last fashion. I've seen many girls do it so," said Amy consolingly. "'Serves me right for trying to be fine. I wish I'd let my hair alone,' cried Meg petulantly. "'So do I. It was so smooth and pretty. But it will soon grow out again,' said Beth, coming to kiss and comfort the shorn sheep. After various lesser mishaps Meg was finished at last and by the united exertions of the entire family Jo's hair was got up and her dress on. They looked very well in their simple suits, Meg's in silvery drab with a blue velvet snood, lace frills, and the pearl pin, Jo in maroon with a stiff gentlemanly linen collar and a white chrysanthemum or two for her only ornament. Each put on one nice light glove and carried one soiled one, and all pronounced the effect quite easy and fine. Meg's high-heeled slippers were very tight and hurt her, though she would not own it, and Jo's nineteen hairpins all seemed stuck straight into her head, which was not exactly comfortable. But, dear me, let us be elegant or die." "'Have a good time, dearies,' said Mrs. March, as the sisters went daintily down the walk. "'Don't eat much supper, and come away at eleven when I send Hannah for you.' As the gate clashed behind them, a voice cried from a window. 
Girls, girls, have you both got nice pocket-handkerchiefs? Yes, yes, spandy nice, and Meg has cologne on hers, cried Joe, adding with a laugh as they went on. I do believe Marmy would ask that if we were all running away from an earthquake. It is one of her aristocratic tastes, and quite proper, for a real lady is always known by neat boots, glove, and handkerchief, replied Meg, who had a good many little aristocratic tastes of her own. Now don't forget to keep the bad breadth out of sight, Joe. Is my sash right? And does my hair look very bad?" said Meg, as she turned from the glass in Mrs. Gardiner's dressing-room after a prolonged prink. I know I shall forget. If you see me doing anything wrong, just remind me by a wink, will you?" returned Joe, giving her collar a twitch and her head a hasty brush. No, winking isn't ladylike. I'll lift my eyebrows if anything is wrong, and nod if you are all right. Now hold your shoulders straight and take short steps, and don't shake hands if you are introduced to anyone. It isn't the thing." How do you learn all the proper ways? I never can. Isn't that music gay?" Down they went, feeling a trifle timid, for they seldom went to parties, and informal as this little gathering was, it was an event to them. Mrs. Gardiner, a stately old lady, greeted them kindly and handed them over to the eldest of her six daughters. Meg knew Sally and was at her ease very soon, but Jo, who didn't care much for girls or girlish gossip, stood about with her back carefully against the wall, and felt as much out of place as a colt in a flower-garden. Half a dozen jovial lads were talking about skates in another part of the room, and she longed to go and join them, for skating was one of the joys of her life. She telegraphed her wish to Meg, but the eyebrows went up so alarmingly that she dared not stir. No one came to talk to her, and one by one the group dwindled away till she was left alone. She could not roam about and amuse herself, for the burned breath would show, so she stared at people rather forlornly till the dancing began. Meg was asked at once, and the tight slippers tripped about so briskly that none would have guessed the pain their wearer suffered smilingly. Jo saw a big red-headed youth approaching her corner, and fearing he meant to engage her, she slipped into a curtained recess, intending to peep and enjoy herself in peace. Unfortunately, another bashful person had chosen the same refuge, for as the curtain fell behind her, she found herself face to face with the Lawrence boy. Uh, dear me, I didn't know anyone was here stammered Joe, preparing to back out as speedily as she had bounced in. But the boy laughed and said pleasantly, though he looked a little startled, "'Don't mind me. Stay if you like.' "'Shan't I disturb you?' "'Not a bit. I only came here because I don't know many people and felt rather strange at first, you know.' "'So did I. Don't go away, please, unless you'd rather.' The boy sat down again and looked at his pumps, till Joe said, trying to be polite and easy, I think I've had the pleasure of seeing you before. You live near us, don't you?" "'Next door!' And he looked up and laughed outright, for Joe's prim manner was rather funny when he remembered how they had chatted about cricket when he brought the cat home. That put Joe at her ease, and she laughed, too, as she said in her heartiest way, "'We did have such a good time over your nice Christmas present.' "'Grandpa sent it.' "'But you put it into his head, didn't you, now?' "'How is your cat, Miss March?' asked the boy, trying to look sober while his black eyes shone with fun. "'Nicely, thank you, Mr. Lawrence, but I am not Miss March. I'm only Joe,' returned the young lady. "'I'm not Mr. Lawrence. I'm only Laurie.' "'Laurie Lawrence? What an odd name!' "'My first name is Theodore. But I don't like it, for the fellows called me Dora. So I made them say Laurie instead.' 
Oh, I hate my name, too. So sentimental. I wish everyone would say Joe instead of Josephine. How did you make the boys stop calling you Dora? I thrashed them. I can't thrash Aunt March, so I suppose I shall have to bear it. And Joe resigned herself with a sigh. Don't you like to dance, Miss Joe? asked Laurie, looking as if he thought the name suited her. I like it well enough if there is plenty of room and everyone is lively. In a place like this I'm sure to upset something, tread on people's toes, or do something dreadful, so I keep out of mischief and let Meg sail about. Don't you dance? Sometimes. You see, I've been abroad a good many years and haven't been into company enough yet to know how you do things here. Abroad? cried Joe. Oh, tell me about it. I love dearly to hear people describe their travels. Laurie didn't seem to know where to begin, but Joe's eager questions soon set him going, and he told her how he had been at school in Vevey, where the boys never wore hats and had a fleet of boats on the lake, and for holiday fun went on walking trips about Switzerland with their teachers. "'Don't I wish I'd been there!' cried Joe. "'Did you go to Paris?' "'We spent last winter there.' "'Can you talk French?' "'We're not allowed to speak anything else at Vevey.' "'Oh, do say some. I can read it but can't pronounce.' How nicely you do it! Let me see. You said, Who is the young lady in the pretty slippers? Didn't you? Oui, mademoiselle. It's my sister Margaret, and you knew it was. Do you think she's pretty? Yes, she makes me think of the German girls. She looks so fresh and quiet, and dances like a lady. Joe quite glowed with pleasure at this boyish praise of her sister, and stored it up to repeat to Meg both peeped and criticized and chatted till they felt like old acquaintances. Laurie's bashfulness soon wore off, for Joe's gentlemanly demeanor amused and set him at his ease, and Joe was her merry self again, because her dress was forgotten and nobody lifted their eyebrows at her. She liked the Lawrence boy better than ever, and took several good looks at him, so that she might describe him to the girls, for they had no brothers, very few male cousins, and boys were almost unknown creatures to them. Curly black hair brown skin, big black eyes, handsome nose, fine teeth, small hands and feet, taller than I am, very polite, for a boy, and altogether jolly. I wonder how old he is." It was on the tip of Joe's tongue to ask, but she checked herself in time, and with unusual tact tried to find out in a roundabout way. "'I suppose you're going to college soon. I see you pegging away at your books—uh, no, I mean studying hard and Joe blushed at the dreadful pegging which had escaped her. Laurie smiled but didn't seem shocked, and answered with a shrug. Oh, not for a year or two. I won't go before seventeen, anyway. Aren't you but fifteen? asked Joe, looking at the tall lad, whom she had imagined seventeen already. Sixteen, next month. How I wish I was going to college. You don't look as if you liked it. I hate it. Nothing but grinding or skylarking. And I don't like the way fellows do either in this country. What do you like? To live in Italy and enjoy myself in my own way. Joe wanted very much to ask what his own way was, but his black brows looked rather threatening as he knit them, so she changed the subject by saying, as her foot kept time, That's a splendid polka. Won't you go and try it? If you will come too. He answered with a gallant little bow. I can't, for I told Meg I wouldn't because— there Joe stopped and looked undecided whether to tell or to laugh. Because what? You won't tell? Never. 
Well, I have a bad trick of standing before the fire, and so I burn my frocks, and I scorched this one, and though it's nicely mended it shows, and Meg told me to keep still so no one would see it. You may laugh if you want to. It is funny, I know." But Laurie didn't laugh. He only looked down a minute, and the expression of his face puzzled Joe when he said very gently, "'Never mind that. I'll tell you how we can manage. There's a long hole out there, and we can dance grandly, and no one will see us. Please come.' Joe thanked him and gladly went, wishing she had two neat gloves when she saw the nice pearl-coloured ones her partner wore. The hall was empty, and they had a grand polka, for Laurie danced well, and taught her the German step which delighted Joe, being full of swing and spring. When the music stopped they sat down on the stairs to get their breath, and Laurie was in the midst of an account of a student's festival at Heidelberg, when Meg appeared in search of her sister. She beckoned, and Joe reluctantly followed her into a side room, where she found her on a sofa, holding her foot and looking pale. "'I've sprained my ankle. That stupid high heel turned and gave me a sad wrench. It aches so I can hardly stand, and I don't know how I'm ever going to get home," she said, rocking to and fro in pain. "'I knew you'd hurt your feet with those silly shoes. I'm sorry, but I don't see what you can do except get a carriage or stay here all night,' answered Joe, softly rubbing the poor ankle as she spoke. "'I can't have a carriage without its costing ever so much. I dare say I can't get one at all, for most people come in their own, and it's a long way to the stable and no one to send." "'I'll go.' "'No, indeed. It's past nine and dark as Egypt. I can't stop here, for the house is full. Sally has some girls staying with her. I'll rest till Hannah comes, and then do the best I can.' "'I'll ask Laurie. He will go,' said Joe, looking relieved as the idea occurred to her. "'Mercy, no! Don't ask or tell anyone. Get me my rubbers and put these slippers with our things. I can't dance any more, but as soon as supper is over watch for Hannah and tell me the minute she comes." They are going out to supper now. I'll stay with you. I'd rather." "'No, dear. Run along and bring me some coffee. I'm so tired I can't stir.' So Meg reclined with rubbers well hidden, and Joe went blundering away to the dining-room, which she found after going into a china closet and opening the door of a room where old Mr. Gardiner was taking a little private refreshment. Making a dart at the table she secured the coffee, which she immediately spilled, thereby making the front of her dress as bad as the back. "'Oh, dear, what a blunderbuss I am!' exclaimed Joe, finishing Meg's glove by scrubbing her gown with it. "'Can I help you?' said a friendly voice. And there was Laurie, with a full cup in one hand and a plate of ice in the other. "'I was trying to get something for Meg, who was very tired, and someone shook me, and here I am in a nice state,' answered Joe, glancing dismally from the stained skirt to the coffee-coloured glove. Oh, "'Too bad. I was looking for someone to give this to.' May I take it to your sister?" "'Oh, thank you. I'll show you where she is. I don't offer to take it myself, for I should only get into another scrape if I did." Joe led the way, and, as if used to waiting on ladies, Laurie drew up a little table, brought a second instalment of coffee and ice for Joe, and was so obliging that even particular Meg pronounced him a nice boy. They had a merry time over the bonbons and mottoes, and were in the midst of a quiet game of buzz, with two or three other young people who had strayed in, when Hannah appeared. Meg forgot her foot and rose so quickly that she was forced to catch hold of Joe with an exclamation of pain. "'Hush! Don't say anything!' she whispered, adding aloud. "'It's nothing. I turned my foot a little, that's all,' and limped upstairs to put her things on. 
Hannah scolded, Meg cried, and Jo was at her wit's end, till she decided to take things into her own hands. Slipping out she ran down, and finding a servant, asked if he could get her a carriage. It happened to be a hired waiter who knew nothing about the neighbourhood, and Jo was looking round for help, when Laurie, who had heard what she said, came up and offered his grandfather's carriage, which had just come for him, he said. "'It's so early! You can't mean to go yet!' began Jo, looking relieved but hesitating to accept the offer. "'I always go early, I do, truly. Please let me take you home. It's all on my way, you know, and it rains, they say.' That settled it and telling him of Meg's mishap Joe gratefully accepted and rushed up to bring down the rest of the party. Hannah hated rain as much as a cat does, so she made no trouble, and they rolled away in the luxurious close carriage, feeling very festive and elegant. Laurie went on the box so Meg could keep her foot up, and the girls talked over their party in freedom. "'I had a capital time. Did you?' asked Joe, rumpling up her hair and making herself comfortable. "'Yes, till I hurt myself.' Sally's friend Annie Moffat took a fancy to me, and asked me to come and spend a week with her when Sally does. She is going in the spring when the opera comes, and it will be perfectly splendid, if Mother only lets me go," answered Meg, cheering up at the thought. "'I saw you dancing with the red-headed man I ran away from. Was he nice?' "'Oh, very. His hair is auburn, not red, and he was very polite, and I had a delicious redowa with him. He looked like a grasshopper in a fit when he did the new step. Laurie and I couldn't help laughing. Did you hear us?" No, but it was very rude. What were you about all that time, hidden away there?" Joe told her adventures, and by the time she had finished they were at home. With many thanks they said good-night and crept in, hoping to disturb no one, but the instant their door creaked, two little nightcaps bobbed up and two sleepy but eager voices cried out. With what Meg called a great want of manners, Joe had saved some bonbons for the little girls, and they soon subsided after hearing the most thrilling events of the evening. "'I declare, it really seems like being a fine young lady, to come home from the party in a carriage and sit in my dressing-gown with a maid to wait on me,' said Meg, as Joe bound up her foot with arnica and brushed her hair. "'I don't believe fine young ladies enjoy themselves a bit more than we do, in spite of our burned hair, old gowns, one glove apiece, and tight slippers that sprain our ankles when we are silly enough to wear them." And I think Joe was quite right. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 4 Burdens Oh, dear, how hard it does seem to take up our packs and go on," sighed Meg, the morning after the party, for now the holidays were over the week of merry-making did not fit her for going on easily with the tasks she never liked. I wish it was Christmas or New Year's all the time. Wouldn't it be fun?" answered Joe, yawning dismally. We shouldn't enjoy ourselves half so much as we do now. But it does seem so nice to have little suppers and bouquets and go to parties and drive home and read and rest and not work. It's like other people, you know, and I always envy girls who do such things. I'm so fond of luxury," said Meg, trying to decide which of two shabby gowns was the least shabby. Well, we can't have it, so don't let us grumble, but shoulder our bundles and trudge along as cheerfully as Marmy does. I'm sure Aunt March is a regular old man of the sea to me. But I suppose when I've learned to carry her without complaining she will tumble off, or get so light that I shan't mind her. 
This idea tickled Joe's fancy and put her in good spirits, but Meg didn't brighten, for her burden, consisting of four spoiled children, seemed heavier than ever. She had not heart enough even to make herself pretty as usual by putting on a blue neck-ribbon and dressing her hair in the most becoming way. "'What's the use of looking nice when no one sees me but those cross midgets and no one cares whether I'm pretty or not?' she muttered, shutting her drawer with a jerk. "'I shall have to toil and moil all my days, with only little bits of fun now and then, and get old and ugly and sour, because I'm poor and can't enjoy my life as other girls do. It's a shame!' So Meg went down, wearing an injured look, and wasn't at all agreeable at breakfast-time. Everyone seemed rather out of sorts and inclined to croak. Beth had a headache and lay on the sofa, trying to comfort herself with the cat and three kittens. Amy was fretting because her lessons were not learned and she couldn't find her rubbers. Joe would whistle and make a great racket getting ready. Mrs. March was very busy trying to finish a letter which must go at once, and Hannah had the grumps, for being up late didn't suit her. "'There never was such a cross family!' cried Joe, losing her temper when she had upset an inkstand, broken both bootlacings, and sat down upon her hat. "'You're the crossest person in it,' returned Amy, washing out the sum that was all wrong with the tears that had fallen on her slate. "'Beth, if you don't keep these horrid cats down cellar I'll have them drowned!' exclaimed Meg angrily as she tried to get rid of the kitten which had scrambled up her back and stuck like a burr just out of reach. Joe laughed, Meg scolded, Beth implored, and Amy wailed because she couldn't remember how much nine times twelve was. "'Girls, girls, do be quiet one minute. I must get this off by the early mail, and you drive me distracted with your worry,' cried Mrs. March, crossing out the third spoiled sentence in her letter. There was a momentary lull, broken by Hannah, who stalked in, laid two hot turnovers on the table, and stalked out again. These turnovers were an institution, and the girls called them muffs, for they had no others, and found the hot pies very comforting to their hands on cold mornings. Hannah never forgot to make them, no matter how busy or grumpy she might be, for the walk was long and bleak. The poor things got no other lunch, and were seldom home before two. "'Cuddle your cats and get over your headache, Bethy. Good-bye, Marmy. We are a set of rascals this morning, but we'll come home regular angels. Now then, Meg!' And Joe tramped away, feeling that the pilgrims were not setting out as they ought to do. They always looked back before turning the corner, for their mother was always at the window to nod and smile and wave her hand to them. Somehow it seemed as if they couldn't have got through the day without that, for whatever their mood might be, the last glimpse of that motherly face was sure to affect them like sunshine. If Marmy shook her fist instead of kissing her hand to us, it would serve us right, for more ungrateful wretches than we are were never seen," cried Joe, taking a remorseful satisfaction in the snowy walk and bitter wind. "'Don't use such dreadful expressions,' replied Meg from the depths of the veil in which she had shrouded herself like a nun sick of the world. "'I like good strong words that mean something,' replied Joe, catching her hat as it took a leap off her head, preparatory to flying away altogether. "'Call yourself any names you like, but I am neither a rascal nor a wretch, and I don't choose to be called so.' "'You're a blighted being, and decidedly cross to-day because you can't sit in the lap of luxury all the time. Poor dear, just wait till I make my fortune, and you shall revel in carriages and ice-cream and high-heeled slippers and posies and red-headed boys to dance with." 
How ridiculous you are, Joe! But Meg laughed at the nonsense and felt better in spite of herself. Lucky for you I am, for if I put on crushed airs and tried to be dismal as you do we should be in a nice state. Thank goodness I can always find something funny to keep me up. Don't croak any more, but come home jolly. There's a dear." Joe gave her sister an encouraging pat on the shoulder as they parted for the day, each going a different way, each hugging her little warm turnover, and each trying to be cheerful in spite of wintry weather, hard work, and the unsatisfied desires of pleasure-loving youth. When Mr. March lost his property in trying to help an unfortunate friend, the two oldest girls begged to be allowed to do something toward their own support at least. Believing that they could not begin too early to cultivate energy, industry, and independence, their parents consented, and both fell to work with the hearty good will which in spite of all obstacles is sure to succeed at last. Margaret found a place as nursery governess, and felt rich with her small salary. As she said, she was fond of luxury, and her chief trouble was poverty. She found it harder to bear than the others because she could remember a time when home was beautiful, life full of ease and pleasure, and want of any kind unknown. She tried not to be envious or discontented, but it was very natural that the young girl should long for pretty things, gay friends, accomplishments, and a happy life. At the King's she daily saw all she wanted, for the children's older sisters were just out, and Meg caught frequent glimpses of dainty ball-dresses and bouquets, heard lively gossip about theatres, concerts, sleighing-parties, and merry-makings of all kinds, and saw money lavished on trifles which would have been so precious to her. Poor Meg seldom complained, but a sense of injustice made her feel bitter toward every one sometimes, for she had not yet learned to know how rich she was in the blessings which alone can make life happy. Joe happened to suit Aunt March, who was lame and needed an active person to wait upon her. The childless old lady had offered to adopt one of the girls when the troubles came, and was much offended because her offer was declined. Other friends told the Marches that they had lost all chance of being remembered in the rich old lady's will, but the unworldly Marches only said, "'We can't give up our girls for a dozen fortunes. Rich or poor, we will keep together and be happy in one another.' The old lady wouldn't speak to them for a time, but happening to meet Joe at a friend's, something in her comical face and blunt manner struck the old lady's fancy, and she proposed to take her for a companion. This did not suit Joe at all, but she accepted the place, since nothing better appeared, and to everyone's surprise got on remarkably well with her irascible relative. There was an occasional tempest, and once Joe marched home, declaring she couldn't bear it longer, but Aunt March always cleared up quickly, and sent for her to come back again with such urgency that she could not refuse, for in her heart she rather liked the peppery old lady. I suspect that the real attraction was a large library of fine books, which was left to dust and spiders since Uncle March died. Joe remembered the kind old gentleman, who used to let her build railroads and bridges with his big dictionaries, tell her stories about queer pictures in his Latin books, and buy her cards of gingerbread whenever he met her in the street. The dim, dusty room with the busts staring down from the tall bookcases, the cosy chairs, the globes, and, best of all, the wilderness of books in which she could wander where she liked, made the library a region of bliss to her. The moment Aunt March took her nap or was busy with company, Joe hurried to this quiet place, and curling herself up in the easy-chair, devoured poetry, romance, history, travels, and pictures like a regular bookworm. But, like all happiness, it did not last long, for as sure as she had just reached the heart of the story, the sweetest verse of a song, or the most perilous adventure of her traveller, a shrill voice called, 
Josephine! Josephine! And she had to leave her paradise to wind yarn, wash the poodle, or read Belsham's essays by the hour together. Joe's ambition was to do something very splendid. What it was she had no idea as yet, but left it for time to tell her, and meanwhile found her greatest affliction in the fact that she couldn't read, run, and ride as much as she liked. A quick temper, sharp tongue, and restless spirit were always getting her into scrapes, and her life was a series of ups and downs which were both comic and pathetic. But the training she received at Aunt March's was just what she needed, and the thought that she was doing something to support herself made her happy in spite of the perpetual— "'Josephine!' Beth was too bashful to go to school. It had been tried, but she suffered so much that it was given up, and she did her lessons at home with her father. Even when he went away and her mother was called to devote her skill and energy to soldiers' aid societies, Beth went on faithfully by herself and did the best she could. She was a housewifely little creature, and helped Hannah keep home neat and comfortable for the workers, never thinking of any reward but to be loved. Long, quiet days she spent, not lonely nor idle, for her little world was peopled with imaginary friends, and she was by nature a busy bee. There were six dolls to be taken up and dressed every morning, for Beth was a child still, and loved her pets as well as ever. Not one whole or handsome among them. All were outcasts, till Beth took them in, for when her sisters outgrew these idols they passed to her, because Amy would have nothing old or ugly. Beth cherished them all the more tenderly for that very reason, and set up a hospital for infirm dolls. No pins were ever stuck into their cotton vitals, no harsh words or blows were ever given them, no neglect ever saddened the heart of the most repulsive, but all were fed and clothed, nursed and caressed with an affection which never failed. One forlorn fragment of dollanity had belonged to Joe, and having led a tempestuous life, was left a wreck in the rag-bag, from which dreary poorhouse it was rescued by Beth, and taken to her refuge. Having no top to its head, she tied on a neat little cap, and as both arms and legs were gone, she hid these deficiencies by folding it in a blanket and devoting her best bed to this chronic invalid. If any one had known the care lavished on that dolly, I think it would have touched their hearts, even while they laughed. She brought it bits of bouquets, she read to it, took it out to breathe fresh air, hidden under her coat, she sang it lullabies and never went to bed without kissing its dirty face and whispering tenderly, "'I hope you'll have a good night, my poor dear.' Beth had her troubles as well as the others, and not being an angel but a very human little girl, she often wept a little weep, as Joe said, because she couldn't take music lessons and have a fine piano. She loved music so dearly, tried so hard to learn, and practiced away so patiently at the jingling old instrument, that it did seem as if someone, not to hint Aunt March, ought to help her. Nobody did, however, and nobody saw Beth wipe the tears off the yellow keys that wouldn't keep in tune when she was all alone. She sang like a little lark about her work, never was too tired for Marmee and the girls, and day after day said hopefully to herself, "'I know I'll get my music sometime if I'm good.' There are many Beths in this world, shy and quiet, sitting in corners till needed, and living for others so cheerfully that no one sees the sacrifices, till the little cricket on the hearth stops chirping, and the sweet, sunshiny presence vanishes, leaving silence and shadow behind. If anybody had asked Amy what the greatest trial of her life was, she would have answered at once, "'My nose!' 
When she was a baby, Joe had accidentally dropped her into the coal-hod, and Amy insisted that the fall had ruined her nose forever. It was not big nor red like poor Petraea's, it was only rather flat, and all the pinching in the world could not give it an aristocratic point. No one minded it but herself, and it was doing its best to grow, but Amy felt deeply the want of a Grecian nose, and drew whole sheets of handsome ones to console herself. Little Raphael, as her sisters called her, had a decided talent for drawing, and was never so happy as when copying flowers, designing fairies, or illustrating stories with queer specimens of art. Her teachers complained that instead of doing her sums she covered her slate with animals, the blank pages of her atlas were used to copy maps on, and caricatures of the most ludicrous description came fluttering out of her books at unlucky moments. She got through her lessons as well as she could, and managed to escape reprimands by being a model of deportment. She was a great favorite with her mates, being good-tempered and possessing the happy art of pleasing without effort. Her little airs and graces were much admired, so were her accomplishments, for besides her drawing she could play twelve tunes, crochet, and read French without mispronouncing more than two-thirds of the words. She had a plaintive way of saying, "'When Papa was rich we did so-and-so,' which was very touching, and her long words were considered perfectly elegant by the girls. Amy was in a fair way to be spoiled, for every one petted her, and her small vanities and selfishnesses were growing nicely. One thing, however, rather quenched the vanities. She had to wear her cousin's clothes. Now Florence's mamma hadn't a particle of taste, and Amy suffered deeply at having to wear a red instead of a blue bonnet, unbecoming gowns, and fussy aprons that did not fit. Everything was good, well-made, and little worn, but Amy's artistic eyes were much afflicted, especially this winter when her school-dress was a dull purple with yellow dots and no trimming. "'My only comfort,' she said to Meg with tears in her eyes, "'is that mother doesn't take tucks in my dresses whenever I'm naughty, as Maria Perks's mother does. My dear, it's really dreadful, for sometimes she is so bad her frock is up to her knees, and she can't come to school. When I think of this degradation, I feel that I can bear even my flat nose and purple gown with yellow skyrockets on it.' Meg was Amy's confidante and monitor, and by some strange attraction of opposites, Joe was gentle Beth's. To Joe alone did the shy child tell her thoughts, and over her big harem-scarum sister, Beth unconsciously exercised more influence than any one in the family. The two older girls were a great deal to one another, but each took one of the younger sisters into her keeping and watched over her in her own way, playing mother, they called it and put their sisters in the places of discarded dolls with the maternal instinct of little women. "'Has anybody got anything to tell? It's been such a dismal day I'm really dying for some amusement,' said Meg, as they sat sewing together that evening. "'I had a queer time with Aunt today, and as I got the best of it I'll tell you about it,' began Joe, who dearly loved to tell stories. "'I was reading that everlasting Belsham, and droning away as I always do her aunt soon drops off, and then I take out some nice book and read like fury till she wakes up. I actually made myself sleepy, and before she began to nod I gave such a gape that she asked me what I meant by opening my mouth wide enough to take the whole book in at once. I wish I could and be done with it, said I, trying not to be saucy. Then she gave me a long lecture on my sins and told me to sit and think them over while she just lost herself for a moment. She never finds herself very soon, so the minute her cat began to bob like a top-heavy dahlia, I whipped the Vicar of Wakefield out of my pocket and read away with one eye on him and one on Aunt. 
I just got to where they all tumbled into the water when I forgot and laughed out loud. Aunt woke up, and, being more good-natured after her nap, told me to read a bit and show what frivolous work I preferred to the worthy and instructive Belsham. I did my very best, and she liked it, though she only said, "'I don't understand what it's all about. Go back and begin it, child.' Back I went, and made the primroses as interesting as ever I could. Once I was wicked enough to stop in a thrilling place and say meekly, "'I'm afraid it tires you, ma'am. Shan't I stop now?' She caught up her knitting, which had dropped out of her hands, gave me a sharp look through her specs, and said, in her short way, "'Finish the chapter. And don't be impertinent, miss.' "'Did she own she liked it?' asked Meg. "'Oh, bless you, no. But she let old Belsham rest. And when I ran back after my gloves this afternoon, there she was, so hard at the vicar that she didn't hear me laugh as I danced a jig in the hall because of the good time coming. What a pleasant life she might have if only she chose!' I don't envy her much, in spite of her money, for after all rich people have about as many worries as poor ones, I think," added Jo. "'That reminds me,' said Meg, "'that I've got something to tell. It isn't funny like Jo's story, but I thought about it a good deal as I came home. At the King's today I found everybody in a flurry, and one of the children said that her oldest brother had done something dreadful, and Papa had sent him away. I heard Mrs. King crying and Mr. King talking very loud and Grace and Ellen turned away their faces when they passed me, so I shouldn't see how red and swollen their eyes were. I didn't ask any questions, of course, but I felt so sorry for them, and was rather glad I hadn't any wild brothers to do wicked things and disgrace the family. I think being disgraced in school is a great deal tryinger than anything bad boys can do," said Amy, shaking her head as if her experience of life had been a deep one. Susie Perkins came to school today with a lovely red carnelian ring. I wanted it dreadfully and wished I was her with all my might. Well, she drew a picture of Mr. Davis with a monstrous nose and a hump and the words, Young ladies, my eye is upon you, coming out of his mouth in a balloon thing. We were laughing over it when all of a sudden his eye was on us, and he ordered Susie to bring up her slate. She was paralyzed with fright, but she went. And oh, what do you think he did? He took her by the ear—the ear! Just fancy how horrid! And led her to the recitation platform and made her stand there half an hour, holding the slate so everyone could see." "'Didn't the girls laugh at the picture?' asked Joe, who relished the scrape. "'Laugh? Not one. They sat still as mice, and Susie cried quartz. I know she did. I didn't envy her then, for I felt that millions of carnelian rings wouldn't have made me happy after that. I never should have got over such an agonizing mortification." And Amy went on with her work, in the proud consciousness of virtue and the successful utterance of two long words in a breath. "'I saw something I liked this morning, and I meant to tell it at dinner. But I forgot,' said Beth, putting Joe's topsy-turvy basket in order as she talked. "'When I went to get some oysters for Hannah. Mr. Lawrence was in the fish-shop, but he didn't see me, for I kept behind the fish-barrel.' and he was busy with Mr. Cutter the fishman. A poor woman came in with a pail and a mop, and asked Mr. Cutter if he would let her do some scrubbing for a bit of fish, because she hadn't any dinner for her children, and had been disappointed of a day's work. Mr. Cutter was in a hurry, and said no, rather crossly. So she was going away, looking hungry and sorry, when Mr. Lawrence hooked up a big fish with the crooked end of his cane, and held it out to her. She was so glad and surprised she took it right into her arms, and thanked him over and over. He told her to go along and cook it, 
and she hurried off so happy. Wasn't it good of him? Oh, she did look so funny hugging the big slippery fish and hoping Mr. Lawrence's bed in heaven would be easy. When they had laughed at Beth's story, they asked their mother for one, and after a moment's thought she said soberly, As I sat cutting out blue flannel jackets to-day at the rooms, I felt very anxious about father, and thought how lonely and helpless we should be if anything happened to him. It was not a wise thing to do, but I kept on worrying, till an old man came in with an order for some clothes. He sat down near me, and I began to talk to him, for he looked poor and tired and anxious. "'Have you sons in the army?' I asked, for the note he brought was not to me. "'Yes, ma'am. I had four, but two were killed. One is a prisoner, and I'm going to the other, who is very sick in the Washington hospital,' he answered quietly. "'You have done a great deal for your country, sir,' I said, feeling respect now, instead of pity. "'Not a mite more than aught, ma'am. I'd go myself if I was any use. As I ain't, I give my boys and give em free.' He spoke so cheerfully, looked so sincere, and seemed so glad to give his all, that I was ashamed of myself. I'd given one man and thought it too much, while he gave four without grudging them. I had all my girls to comfort me at home, and his last son was waiting, miles away, to say good-bye to him, perhaps. I felt so rich, so happy thinking of my blessings, that I made him a nice bundle, gave him some money, and thanked him heartily for the lesson he had taught me. "'Tell another story, mother, one with a moral to it like this. I like to think about them afterward, if they are real and not too preachy,' said Joe, after a minute's silence. Mrs. March smiled and began at once, for she had told stories to this little audience for many years, and knew how to please them. "'Once upon a time there were four girls, who had enough to eat and drink and wear, a good many comforts and pleasures, kind friends and parents who loved them dearly, and yet they were not contented." Here the listeners stole sly looks at one another, and began to sew diligently. These girls were anxious to be good, and made many excellent resolutions, but they did not keep them very well, and were constantly saying, "'If only we had this,' or, "'If we could only do that,' quite forgetting how much they already had, and how many things they actually could do. So they asked an old woman what spell they could use to make them happy, and she said, "'When you feel discontented, think over your blessings, and be grateful.' Here Joe looked up quickly as if about to speak, but changed her mind, seeing that the story was not done yet. Being sensible girls, they decided to try her advice, and soon were surprised to see how well off they were. One discovered that money couldn't keep shame and sorrow out of rich people's houses, another that, though she was poor, she was a great deal happier with her youth, health, and good spirits than a certain fretful, feeble old lady who couldn't enjoy her comforts. A third that, disagreeable as it was to help get dinner, it was harder still to go begging for it. And the fourth that even carnelian rings were not so valuable as good behavior. So they agreed to stop complaining, to enjoy the blessings already possessed, and try to deserve them lest they should be taken away entirely, instead of increased, and I believe they were never disappointed or sorry that they took the old woman's advice. Now, Marmee, that is very cunning of you to turn our own stories against us, and give us a sermon instead of a romance," cried Meg. I like that kind of sermon. It's the sort father used to tell us. 
said Beth, thoughtfully, putting the needles straight on Joe's cushion. I don't complain near as much as the others do, and I shall be more careful than ever now, for I've had warning from Susie's downfall," said Amy morally. We needed that lesson, and we won't forget it. If we do so, you just say to us, as old Chloe did in Uncle Tom, "'Tink up your mercies, chillin, tink up your mercies,' added Joe, who could not for the life of her help getting a morsel of fun out of the little sermon, though she took it to heart as much as any of them. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 of Little Women This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 5 Being Neighborly What in the world are you going to do now, Joe? asked Meg one snowy afternoon as her sister came tramping through the hall in rubber boots, old sack, and hood, with a broom in one hand and a shovel in the other. Going out for exercise answered Joe, with a mischievous twinkle in her eyes. "'I should think two long walks this morning would have been enough. It's cold and dull out, and I advise you to stay warm and dry by the fire as I do,' said Meg, with a shiver. "'Never take advice. I can't keep still all day, and not being a pussy-cat I don't like to doze by the fire. I like adventures, and I'm going to find some.' Meg went back to toast her feet and read Ivanhoe and Joe began to dig paths with great energy. The snow was light, and with her broom she soon swept a path all round the garden, for Beth to walk in when the sun came out and the invalid dolls needed air. Now the garden separated the March's house from that of Mr. Lawrence. Both stood in a suburb of the city, which was still country-like, with groves and lawns, large gardens and quiet streets. A low hedge parted the two estates. On one side was an old brown house, looking rather bare and shabby, robbed of the vines that in summer covered its walls, and the flowers which then surrounded it. On the other side was a stately stone mansion, plainly betokening every sort of comfort and luxury, from the big coach-house and well-kept grounds, to the conservatory and the glimpses of lovely things one caught between the rich curtains. Yet it seemed a lonely, lifeless sort of house for no children frolicked on the lawn, no motherly face ever smiled at the windows, and few people went in and out, except the old gentleman and his grandson. To Joe's lively fancy this fine house seemed a kind of enchanted palace, full of splendors and delights which no one enjoyed. She had long wanted to behold these hidden glories, and to know the Lawrence boy, who looked as if he would like to be known if he only knew how to begin. Since the party she had been more eager than ever, and had planned many ways of making friends with him, but he had not been seen lately, and Joe began to think he had gone away, when she one day spied a brown face at an upper window, looking wistfully down into their garden, where Beth and Amy were snowballing one another. "'That boy is suffering for society and fun,' she said to herself. "'His grandpa does not know what's good for him, and keeps him shut up all alone. He needs a party of jolly boys to play with, or somebody young and lively. I've a great mind to go over and tell the old gentleman so." The idea amused Joe, who liked to do daring things, and was always scandalizing Meg by her queer performances. The plan of going over was not forgotten. And when the snowy afternoon came, Joe resolved to try what could be done. She saw Mr. Lawrence drive off, and then sallied out to dig her way down to the hedge, where she paused and took a survey all quiet, curtains down at the lower windows, 
servants out of sight, and nothing human visible but a curly black head leaning on a thin hand at the upper window. There he is, thought Joe. Poor boy! All alone and sick this dismal day? It's a shame. I'll toss up a snowball and make him look out, and then say a kind word to him." Up went a handful of soft snow, and the head turned at once, showing a face which lost its listless look in a minute, as the big eyes brightened and the mouth began to smile. Jo nodded and laughed, and flourished her broom as she called out, "'How do you do? Are you sick?' Laurie opened the window, and croaked out as hoarsely as a raven. "'Better, thank you. I've had a bad cold and been shut up a week.' "'I'm sorry. What do you amuse yourself with?' "'Nothing. It's dull as tombs up here.' "'Don't you read?' "'Not much. They won't let me.' "'Can't somebody read to you?' "'Grandpa does sometimes, but my books don't interest him, and I hate to ask Brooke all the time.' "'Have someone come and see you, then.' "'There isn't anyone I'd like to see. Boys make such a row.' and my head is weak. Isn't there some nice girl who'd read and amuse you? Girls are quiet and like to play nurse. Don't know any. You know us, began Joe, then laughed and stopped. So I do. Will you come, please? cried Laurie. I'm not nice and quiet, but I'll come if mother will let me. I'll go ask her. Shut the window like a good boy and wait till I come. With that, Joe shouldered her broom and marched into the house, wondering what they would all say to her. Laurie was in a flutter of excitement at the idea of having company, and flew about to get ready, for, as Mrs. March said, he was a little gentleman, and did honour to the coming guest by brushing his curly pate, putting on a fresh colour, and trying to tidy up the room, which in spite of half a dozen servants was anything but neat. Presently there came a loud ring. Then a decided voice asking for Mr. Lorry, and a surprised-looking servant came running up to announce a young lady. "'All right, show her up. It's Miss Joe,' said Lorry, going to the door of his little parlour to meet Joe, who appeared looking rosy and quite at her ease, with a covered dish in one hand and Beth's three kittens in the other. "'Here I am, bag and baggage,' she said briskly. "'Mother sent her love and was glad if I could do anything for you.' Meg wanted me to bring some of her blancmange. She makes it very nicely. And Beth thought her cats would be comforting. <laughs> I knew you'd laugh at them, but I couldn't review. She was so anxious to do something." It so happened that Beth's funny loan was just the thing, for in laughing over the kits Laurie forgot his bashfulness and grew sociable at once. "'That looks too pretty to eat,' he said, smiling with pleasure as Joe uncovered the dish and showed the blancmange, surrounded by a garland of green leaves and the scarlet flowers of Amy's pet geranium. It isn't anything, only they all felt kindly and wanted to show it. Tell the girl to put it away for your tea. It's so simple that you can eat it, and being soft it will slip down without hurting your sore throat. What a cosy room this is! It might be if it was kept nice, but the maids are lazy, and I don't know how to make them mind. It worries me, though. I'll write it up in two minutes, for it only needs to have the hearth brushed so, and the things made straight on the mantelpiece so, and the books put here, and the bottles there, and your sofa turned from the light, and the pillows plumped up a bit. Now then, you're fixed." And so he was, for as she laughed and talked, Joe had whisked things into place and given quite a different air to the room. Laurie watched her in respectful silence, and when she beckoned him to his sofa, he sat down with a sigh of satisfaction, saying gratefully, oh, "'How kind you are! Yes, that's what it wanted. 
Now, please, take the big chair, and let me do something to amuse my company. No, I came to amuse you. Shall I read aloud? And Joe looked affectionately toward some inviting books nearby. Thank you. I've read all those, and if you don't mind, I'd rather talk, answered Laurie. Not a bit. I'll talk all day if you'll only set me going. Beth says I never know when to stop. Is Beth the rosy one who stays at home a good deal and sometimes goes out with a little basket? asked Laurie with interest. Yes, that's Beth. She's my girl, and a regular good one she is, too. The pretty one is Meg, and the curly-haired one is Amy, I believe. How did you find that out? Laurie colored up, but answered frankly. Why, you see, I often hear you calling to one another. And when I'm alone up here, I can't help looking over at your house. You always seem to be having such good times. I beg your pardon for being so rude, but sometimes you forget to put down the curtain at the window where the flowers are. And when the lamps are lighted, it's like looking at a picture to see the fire and you all around the table with your mother. Her face is right opposite, and it looks so sweet behind the flowers, I can't help watching it. I haven't got any mother, you know. And Laurie poked the fire to hide a little twitching of the lips that he could not control. The solitary, hungry look in his eyes went straight to Joe's warm heart. She had been so simply taught that there was no nonsense in her head, and at fifteen she was as innocent and frank as any child. Laurie was sick and lonely, and feeling how rich she was in home and happiness, she gladly tried to share it with him. Her face was very friendly, and her sharp voice unusually gentle as she said, "'We'll never draw that curtain any more, and I give you leave to look as much as you like.' I just wish, though, instead of peeping, you'd come over and see us. Mother is so splendid, she'd do you heaps of good, and Beth would sing to you if I begged her to, and Amy would dance. Meg and I would make you laugh over our funny stage properties, and we'd have jolly times. Wouldn't your grandpa let you? I think he would, if your mother asked him. He's very kind, though he does not look so, and he lets me do what I like pretty much, only he's afraid I might be a bother to strangers began Laurie, brightening more and more. "'We are not strangers. We are neighbors. And you needn't think you'd be a bother. We want to know you, and I've been trying to do this ever so long. We haven't been here a great while, you know, but we've got acquainted with all our neighbors but you.' "'You see, Grandpa lives among his books, and doesn't much mind what happens outside. Mr. Brooke, my tutor, doesn't stay here, you know, and I have no one to go about with me.' So I just stop at home and get on as I can. That's bad. You ought to make an effort and go visiting everywhere you are asked, and then you'll have plenty of friends and pleasant places to go. Never mind being bashful. It won't last long if you keep going." Laurie turned red again, but wasn't offended at being accused of bashfulness, for there was so much good will in Joe it was impossible not to take her blunt speeches as kindly as they were meant. Do you like your school? asked the boy changing the subject after a little pause, during which he stared at the fire, and Joe looked about her, well pleased. "'Don't go to school. I'm a businessman. Girl, I mean. I go to wait on my great-aunt, and a dear, cross old soul she is, too,' answered Joe. Laurie opened his mouth to ask another question, but remembering just in time that it wasn't manners to make too many inquiries into people's affairs, he shut it again and looked uncomfortable. Joe liked his good breeding and didn't mind having a laugh at Aunt March, so she gave him a lively description of the fidgety old lady, her fat poodle, the parrot that talked Spanish, and the library where she reveled. 
Laurie enjoyed that immensely, and when she told about the prim old gentleman who came once to woo Aunt March, and in the middle of a fine speech, how Paul had tweaked his wig off to his great dismay, the boy lay back and laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks, and a maid popped her head in to see what was the matter. "'Oh, that does me no end of good! Tell on, please!' he said, taking his face out of the sofa-cushion, red and shining with merriment. Much elated with her success, Joe did tell on, all about their plays and plans, their hopes and fears for father, and the most interesting events of the little world in which the sisters lived. Then they got to talking about books, and to Joe's delight she found that Laurie loved them as well as she did, and had even read more than herself. "'If you like them so much, come down and see ours. Grandfather is out, so you needn't be afraid,' said Laurie, getting up. "'I'm not afraid of anything.' returned Joe, with a toss of the head. "'I don't believe you are,' exclaimed the boy, looking at her with much admiration, though he privately thought she would have good reason to be a trifle afraid of the old gentleman if she met him in some of his moods. The atmosphere of the whole house being summer-like, Laurie led the way from room to room, letting Joe stop to examine whatever struck her fancy. And so at last they came to the library, where she clapped her hands and pranced as she always did when especially delighted. It was lined with books, and there were pictures and statues, and distracting little cabinets full of coins and curiosities, and sleepy hollow chairs, and queer tables, and bronzes, and best of all a great open fireplace with quaint tiles all round it. "'What richness!' sighed Jo, sinking into the depth of a velour chair and gazing about her with an air of intense satisfaction. "'Theodore Lawrence, you ought to be the happiest boy in the world,' she added impressively. "'A fellow can't live on books,' said Laurie, shaking his head as he perched on a table opposite. Before he could moor, a bell rang, and Joe flew up, exclaiming with alarm, "'Mercy me! It's your grandpa!' "'Well, what if it is? You're not afraid of anything, you know,' returned the boy, looking wicked. "'I think I am a little bit afraid of him, but I don't know why I should be.' "'Marmy said I might come, and I don't think you're any the worse for it,' said Joe, composing herself, though she kept her eyes on the door. "'I'm a great deal better for it, and ever so much obliged. I'm only afraid you are very tired of talking to me. It was so pleasant I couldn't bear to stop,' said Laurie gratefully. "'The doctor to see you, sir,' and the maid beckoned as she spoke. "'Would you mind if I left you for a minute? I suppose I must see him.' said Laurie. "'Don't mind me. I'm as happy as a cricket here,' answered Joe. Laurie went away, and his guest amused herself in her own way. She was standing before a fine portrait of the old gentleman when the door opened again, and without turning she said decidedly, "'I'm sure now that I shouldn't be afraid of him, for he's got kind eyes, though his mouth is grim, and he looks as if he had a tremendous will of his own. He isn't as handsome as my grandfather, but I like him.' "'Thank you, ma'am,' said a gruff voice behind her, and there, to her great dismay, stood old Mr. Lawrence. Poor Jo blushed till she couldn't blush any redder, and her heart began to beat uncomfortably fast as she thought what she had said. For a minute a wild desire to run away possessed her, but that was cowardly, and the girls would laugh at her, so she resolved to stay and get out of the scrape as she could. A second look showed her that the living eyes, under the bushy eyebrows, were kinder even than the painted ones, and there was a sly twinkle in them, which lessened her fear a good deal. 
The gruff voice was gruffer than ever, as the old gentleman said abruptly, after the dreadful pause. "'So you're not afraid of me, eh?' "'Not much, sir.' "'And you don't think me as handsome as your grandfather?' "'Not quite, sir.' "'And I've got a tremendous will, have I?' "'I only said I thought so.' "'But you like me in spite of it?' "'Yes, I do, sir.' That answer pleased the old gentleman. He gave a short laugh, shook hands with her, and putting his finger under her chin, turned up her face, examined it gravely, and let it go, saying with a nod, "'You've got your grandfather's spirit, if you haven't his face. He was a fine man, my dear, but what is better, he was a brave and an honest one, and I was proud to be his friend.' "'Thank you, sir.' And Joe was quite comfortable after that, for it suited her exactly. "'What have you been doing to this boy of mine, eh?' was the next question, sharply put. "'Only trying to be neighborly, sir.' And Joe told how her visit came about. "'You think he needs cheering up a bit, do you?' "'Yes, sir. He seems a little lonely, and young folks would do him good, perhaps. We are only girls, but we should be glad to help if we could, for we don't forget the splendid Christmas present you sent us,' said Joe eagerly. "'Tut, tut, tut! That was the boy's affair. How is the poor woman?' doing nicely, sir. And off went Joe, talking very fast as she told all about the Hummels, in whom her mother had interested richer friends than they were. Just her father's way of doing good. I shall come and see your mother some fine day. Tell her so. There's the tea-bell. We have it early on the boy's account. Come down and go on being neighborly. If you'd like to have me, sir. Shouldn't ask you if I didn't. And Mr. Lawrence offered her his arm with old-fashioned courtesy. "'What would Meg say to this?' thought Joe, as she was marched away, while her eyes danced with fun as she imagined herself telling the story at home. "'Hey, why, what the dickens has come to the fellow?' said the old gentleman, as Laurie came running downstairs and brought up with a start of surprise at the astounding sight of Joe arm in arm with his redoubtable grandfather. "'I didn't know you'd come, sir,' he began, as Joe gave him a triumphant little glance. "'That's evident by the way you racket downstairs.' Come to your tea, sir, and behave like a gentleman." And having pulled the boy's hair by way of a caress, Mr. Lawrence walked on, while Laurie went through a series of comic evolutions behind their backs, which nearly produced an explosion of laughter from Joe. The old gentleman did not say much as he drank his four cups of tea, but he watched the young people, who soon chatted away like old friends, and the change in his grandson did not escape him. There was color, light, and life in the boy's face now vivacity in his manner, and genuine merriment in his laugh. "'She's right. The lad is lonely. I'll see what these little girls can do for him,' thought Mr. Lawrence, as he looked and listened. He liked Joe, for her odd, blunt ways suited him, and she seemed to understand the boy almost as well as if she had been one herself. If the Lawrences had been what Joe called prim and pokey, she would not have got on at all, for such people always made her shy and awkward but finding them free and easy, she was so herself, and made a good impression. When they rose, she proposed to go, but Laurie said he had something more to show her, and took her away to the conservatory which had been lighted for her benefit. It seemed quite fairy-like to Joe, as she went up and down the walks, enjoying the blooming walls on either side, the soft light, the damp, sweet air, and the wonderful vines and trees that hung about her, while her new friend cut the finest flowers till his hands were full. Then he tied them up, saying with the happy look Joe liked to see, "'Please give these to your mother. 
and tell her I like the medicine she sent me very much." They found Mr. Lawrence standing before the fire in the great drawing-room, but Joe's attention was entirely absorbed by a grand piano which stood open. "'Do you play?' she asked, turning to Laurie with a respectful expression. "'Sometimes,' he answered modestly. "'Please do now. I want to hear it so I can tell Beth.' "'Won't you first? "'Don't know how. Too stupid to learn. But I love music dearly.' So Laurie played, and Joe listened, with her nose luxuriously buried in heliotrope and tea-roses. Her respect and regard for the Lawrence boy increased very much, for he played remarkably well and didn't put on any airs. She wished Beth could hear him, but she did not say so, only praised him till he was quite abashed, and his grandfather came to his rescue. "'That will do. That will do, young lady. Too many sugar-plums are not good for him. His music isn't bad, but I hope you will do as well in more important things. Going? Well, I'm much obliged to you, and I hope you'll come again. My respects to your mother. Good night, Dr. Joe." He shook hands kindly, but looked as if something did not please him. When they got into the hall, Joe asked Laurie if she had said something amiss. He shook his head. No, it was me. He doesn't like to hear me play. Why not? I'll tell you some day. John is going home with you, as I can't. No need of that. I am not a young lady, and it's only a step. Take care of yourself, won't you? Yes, but you will come again, I hope. If you promise to come and see us after you are well. I will. Good night, Laurie. Good night, Joe. Good night. When all the afternoon's adventures had been told, the family felt inclined to go visiting in a body, for each found something very attractive in the big house on the other side of the hedge. Mrs. March wanted to talk of her father with the old man who had not forgotten him. Meg longed to walk in the conservatory, Beth sighed for the grand piano, and Amy was eager to see the fine pictures and statues. "'Mother, why didn't Mr. Lawrence like to have Laurie play?' asked Joe, who was of an inquiring disposition. "'I am not sure, but I think it was because his son, Laurie's father, married an Italian lady, a musician, which displeased the old man, who was very proud. The lady was good and lovely and accomplished, but he did not like her, and never saw his son after he married. They both died when Laurie was a little child, and then his grandfather took him home. I fancy the boy, who was born in Italy, is not very strong, and the old man is afraid of losing him, which makes him so careful. Laurie comes naturally by his love of music, for he is like his mother, and I dare say his grandfather fears that he may want to be a musician. At any rate, his skill reminds him of the woman he did not like, and so he glowered, as Joe said. "'Dear me, how romantic!' exclaimed Meg. "'How silly!' said Joe. "'Let him be a musician if he wants to, and not plague his life out sending him to college when he hates to go.' "'That's why he has such handsome black eyes and pretty manners, I suppose. Italians are always nice,' said Meg, who was a little sentimental. "'What do you know about his eyes and his manners? You never spoke to him hardly.' cried Joe, who was not sentimental. "'I saw him at the party, and what you tell shows that he knows how to behave. That was a nice little speech about the medicine mother sent him.' "'He meant the blancmange, I suppose.' "'How stupid you are, child! He meant you, of course.' "'Did he?' And Joe opened her eyes as if it had never occurred to her before. "'I never saw such a girl. You don't know a compliment when you get it.' 
said Meg, with the air of a young lady who knew all about the matter. I think they are great nonsense, and I'll thank you not to be silly and spoil my fun. Laurie's a nice boy, and I like him, and I won't have any sentimental stuff about compliments and such rubbish. We'll all be good to him because he hasn't got any mother, and he may come over and see us, mayn't he, Marmy? Yes, Joe, your little friend is very welcome, and I hope Meg will remember that children should be children as long as they can. I don't call myself a child, and I'm not in my teens yet observed Amy. What do you say, Beth? I was thinking about our pilgrim's progress, answered Beth, who had not heard a word. How we got out of the slaw and through the wicket gate by resolving to be good, and up the steep hill by trying. And it may be the house over there, full of splendid things, is going to be our palace beautiful. We have got to get by the lions first, said Joe, as if she rather liked the prospect. End of chapter 5「Chapter 6 of Little Women – This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Chapter 6 – Beth Finds the Palace Beautiful The big house did prove a palace beautiful, though it took some time for all to get in, and Beth found it very hard to pass the lions. Old Mr. Lawrence was the biggest one, but after he had called, said something funny or kind to each one of the girls, and talked over old times with their mother, nobody felt much afraid of him, except timid Beth. The other lion was the fact that they were poor and Laurie rich, for this made them shy of accepting favours which they could not return. But after a while they found that he considered them the benefactors, and could not do enough to show how grateful he was for Mrs. March's motherly welcome, their cheerful society, and the comfort he took in that humble home of theirs. So they soon forgot their pride, and interchanged kindnesses without stopping to think which was the greater. All sorts of pleasant things happened about that time, for the new friendship flourished like grass in spring. Every one liked Laurie, and he privately informed his tutor that— the marches were regularly splendid girls with a delightful enthusiasm of youth they took the solitary boy into their midst and made much of him and he found something very charming in the innocent companionship of these simple-hearted girls never having known mother or sisters he was quick to feel the influences they brought about him and their busy lively ways made him ashamed of the indolent life he led he was tired of books and found people so interesting now that Mr. Brooke was obliged to make very unsatisfactory reports, for Laurie was always playing truant and running over to the marches. "'Never mind. Let him take a holiday, and make it up afterward,' said the old gentleman. "'The good lady next door says he is studying too hard, and needs young society, amusement, and exercise. I suspect she is right, and that I have been coddling the fellow as if I'd been his grandmother.' let him do what he likes as long as he is happy he can't get into mischief in that little nunnery over there and mrs march is doing more for him than we can what good times they had to be sure such plays and tableaus such sleigh rides and skating frolics such pleasant evenings in the old parlour and now and then such gay little parties at the great house meg could walk in the conservatory whenever she liked and revel in bouquets Joe browsed over the new library voraciously, and convulsed the old gentleman with her criticisms. Amy copied pictures and enjoyed beauty to her heart's content, 
and Laurie played lord of the manor in the most delightful style. But Beth, though yearning for the grand piano, could not pluck up courage to go to the Mansion of Bliss, as Meg called it. She went once with Joe, but the old gentleman, not being aware of her infirmity, stared at her so hard from under his heavy eyebrows, and said, "'Hey!' so loud, that he frightened her so much her feet chattered on the floor, she never told her mother, and she ran away, declaring she would never go there any more, not even for the dear piano. No persuasions or enticements could overcome her fear, till the fact coming to Mr. Lawrence's ear in some mysterious way, he set about mending matters. During one of the brief calls he made, he artfully led the conversation to music, and talked away about great singers whom he had seen, fine organs he had heard, and told such charming anecdotes that Beth found it impossible to stay in her distant corner, but crept nearer and nearer, as if fascinated. At the back of his chair she stopped and stood listening, with her great eyes wide open and her cheeks red with excitement of this unusual performance. Taking no more notice of her than if she had been a fly, Mr. Lawrence talked on about Laurie's lessons and teachers. And presently, as if the idea had just occurred to him, he said to Mrs. March, "'The boy neglects his music now, and I'm glad of it, for he was getting too fond of it. But the piano suffers for want of use. Wouldn't some of your girls like to run over and practice on it now and then? Just to keep it in tune, you know, ma'am?' Beth took a step forward, and pressed her hands tightly together to keep from clapping them, for this was an irresistible temptation and the thought of practising on that splendid instrument quite took her breath away. Before Mrs. March could reply, Mr. Lawrence went on with an odd little nod and smile. "'They needn't see or speak to any one, but run in at any time, for I'm shut up in my study at the other end of the house. Laurie is out a great deal, and the servants are never near the drawing-room after nine o'clock.' Here he rose, as if going, and Beth made up her mind to speak for that last arrangement left nothing to be desired. "'Please, tell the young ladies what I say, and if they don't care to come, why, never mind.' Here a little hand slipped into his, and Beth looked up at him with a face full of gratitude, as she said in her earnest yet timid way, "'Oh, sir, they do care very, very much.' "'Are you the musical girl?' he asked, without any startling, hey, as he looked down at her very kindly. "'I'm, I'm Beth.' I love it dearly, and I'll come, if you are quite sure nobody will hear me and be disturbed," she added, fearing to be rude, and trembling at her own boldness as she spoke. "'Not a soul, my dear. The house is empty half the day. So come, and drum away as much as you like, and I shall be obliged to you.' "'How kind you are, sir!' Beth blushed like a rose under the friendly look he wore, but she was not frightened now and gave the hand a grateful squeeze because she had no words to thank him for the precious gift he had given her. The old gentleman softly stroked the hair off her forehead, and stooping down, he kissed her, saying in a tone few people ever heard, "'I had a little girl once, with eyes like these. God bless you, my dear. Good day, madame.' And he went away in a great hurry. Beth had a rapture with her mother and then rushed up to impart the glorious news to her family of invalids, as the girls were not home. How blithely she sang that evening, and how they all laughed at her because she woke Amy in the night by playing the piano on her face in her sleep. Next day, having seen both the old and the young gentleman out of the house, Beth, after two or three retreats, fairly got in at the side door, 
and made her way as noiselessly as any mouse to the drawing-room where her idol stood. Quite by accident, of course, some pretty easy music lay on the piano, and with trembling fingers and frequent stops to listen and look about, Beth at last touched the great instrument, and straightway forgot her fear, herself, and everything else but the unspeakable delight which the music gave her, for it was like the voice of a beloved friend. She stayed till Hannah came to take her home to dinner, but she had no appetite, and could only sit and smile upon every one in a general state of beatitude. After that, the little brown hood slipped through the hedge nearly every day, and the great drawing-room was haunted by a tuneful spirit that came and went unseen. She never knew that Mr. Lawrence opened his study door to hear the old-fashioned airs he liked. She never saw Laurie mount guard in the hall to warn the servants away. She never suspected that the exercise-books and new songs which she found in the rack were put there for her especial benefit, and when he talked to her about music at home, she only thought how kind he was to tell things that helped her so much. So she enjoyed herself heartily, and found, what isn't always the case, that her granted wish was all she hoped for. Perhaps it was because she was so grateful for this blessing that a greater was given her. At any rate, she deserved both. Mother. I'm going to work Mr. Lawrence a pair of slippers. He is so kind to me, I must thank him, and I don't know any other way. Can I do it? asked Beth, a few weeks after that eventful call of his. Yes, dear, it will please him very much, and be a nice way of thanking him. The girls will help you about them, and I will pay for the making up, replied Mrs. March, who took peculiar pleasure in granting Beth's requests, because she so seldom asked anything for herself. After many serious discussions with Meg and Joe, the pattern was chosen, the materials bought, and the slippers begun. A cluster of grave yet cheerful pansies on a deeper purple ground was pronounced very appropriate and pretty, and Beth worked away early and late, with occasional lifts over hard parts. She was a nimble little needlewoman, and they were finished before anyone got tired of them. Then she wrote a short, simple note, and with Laurie's help, got them smuggled onto the study table one morning before the old gentleman was up. When this excitement was over, Beth waited to see what would happen. All day passed, and a part of the next, before any acknowledgment arrived, and she was beginning to fear she had offended her crotchety friend. On the afternoon of the second day she went out to do an errand, and give poor Joanna, the invalid doll, her daily exercise. As she came up the street, on her return, she saw three, yes, four heads popping in and out of the parlour windows, and the moment they saw her several hands were waved, and several joyful voices screamed, "'Here's a letter from the old gentleman. Come quick and read it.' "'Oh, Beth, he sent you,' began Amy, gesticulating with unseemly energy, but she got no further, for Joe quenched her by slamming down the window. Beth hurried on in a flutter of suspense. At the door her sister seized and bore her to the parlour in a triumphal procession, all pointing and saying at once, "'Look, look there! Look, look there. there!' Beth did look, and turned pale with delight and surprise, for there stood a little cabinet piano, with a letter lying on the glossy lid, directed like a signboard to Miss Elizabeth March. <gasps> "'For me?' gasped Beth holding on to Joe and feeling as if she should tumble down, it was such an overwhelming thing altogether. "'Yes, all for you, my precious! Isn't it splendid of him? Don't you think he's the dearest old man in the world? Here's the key in the letter. We didn't open it. We are dying to know what he says!' cried Joe, hugging her sister and offering the note. "'You read it. 
I, I can't. I feel so queer. Oh, it's too lovely. And Beth hid her face in Joe's apron, quite upset by her present. Joe opened the paper and began to laugh, for the first words she saw were, Miss March, dear madam. How nice it sounds. I wish someone would write to me so, said Amy, who thought the old-fashioned address very elegant. I have had many pairs of slippers in my life, but I never had any that suited me so well as yours, continued Joe. Heart's ease is my favorite flower, and these will always remind me of the gentle giver. I like to pay my debts, so I know you will allow the old gentleman to send you something which once belonged to the little granddaughter he lost. With hearty thanks and best wishes, I remain your faithful friend and humble servant, James Lawrence. There, Beth, that's an honor to be proud of, I'm sure. Laurie told me how fond Mr. Lawrence used to be of the child who died, and how he kept all her little things carefully. Just think he's given you her piano. That comes of having big blue eyes and loving music," said Joe, trying to soothe Beth, who trembled and looked more excited than she had ever been before. See the cunning brackets to hold candles, and the nice green silk puckered up with the gold rose in the middle, and the pretty rack and stool all complete," added Meg, opening the instrument and displaying its beauties. Your humble servant, James Lawrence. Only think of his writing that to you. I'll tell the girls. They'll think it's splendid," said Amy, much impressed by the note. "'Try it, honey. Let's hear the sound of the baby piano," said Hannah, who always took a share in the family joys and sorrows. So Beth tried it, and everyone pronounced it the most remarkable piano ever heard. It had evidently been newly tuned and put in apple-pie order, but perfect as it was, I think the real charm lay in the happiest of all happy faces which leaned over it, as Beth lovingly touched the beautiful black and white keys and pressed the bright petals. "'You'll have to go and thank him,' said Joe, by way of a joke, for the idea of the child's really going never entered her head. "'Yes, I mean to. I guess I'll go now, before I get frightened thinking about it.' And to the utter amazement of the assembled family, Beth walked deliberately down the garden, through the hedge, and in at the Lawrence's door. "'Well, I wish I may die if it ain't the queerest thing I ever see. The piano has turned her head. She'd never have gone in her right mind,' cried Hannah, staring after her, while the girls were rendered quite speechless by the miracle. They would have been still more amazed if they had seen what Beth did afterward. If you will believe me, she went and knocked at the study door before she gave herself time to think, and when a gruff voice called out, Come in." She did go in, right up to Mr. Lawrence, who looked quite taken aback, and held out her hand, saying with only a small quaver in her voice, "'I—I I came to thank you, sir, for—' But she didn't finish, for he looked so friendly that she forgot her speech, and only remembering that he had lost the little girl he loved, she put both arms round his neck and kissed him. If the roof of the house had suddenly flown off, the old gentleman wouldn't have been more astonished. But he liked it. Oh, dear, yes, he liked it amazingly, and was so touched and pleased by that confiding little kiss that all his crustiness vanished, and he just set her on his knee and laid his wrinkled cheek against her rosy one, feeling as if he had got his own little granddaughter back again. 
Beth ceased to fear him from that moment, and sat there talking to him as cosily as if she had known him all her life. For love casts out fear, and gratitude can conquer pride. When she went home, he walked with her to her own gate, shook hands cordially, and touched his hat as he marched back again, looking very stately and erect, like a handsome, soldierly old gentleman, as he was. When the girls saw that performance, Jo began to dance a jig, by way of expressing her satisfaction, Amy nearly fell out of the window in her surprise, and Meg exclaimed, with uplifted hands, "'Well, I do believe the world is coming to an end.'" End of chapter 6 When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.